G'day, mate. Forty here. We had somebody killing the homeless in Los Angeles. About three homeless people were killed in very rapid succession, and they caught the guy through the use of technology, thanks to what Beverly Hills was doing to police and, and track people. So this is an important clip from... ABC News, how a suspected serial killer in Los Angeles was found. Images of him and a vehicle. Where did it go from there? Yeah, so this came down to technology in Beverly Hills. The detectives in that murder that you were talking about of the IT worker, they got a license plate off of that crime scene. They were able to put it into a law enforcement database. And Beverly Hills has a very unique, controversial civil rights activist. Don't like it. Uh, Beverly Hills has been sued a number of times. A system where the, the city is blanketed with license plate readers, with cameras, where they can pick up anybody moving in and out of the city where of Beverly the, Hills. The city is and last week, when he moved into Beverly Hills, when he drove in, alarms started going off. They knew he was there. They were able then to direct officers in to make the arrest, and they got him that way. This is an example of how the technology is evolving in policing, that it worked. Controversial, but it worked, Kana. Yeah, law enforcement agencies there in Beverly Hills certainly touting this as a huge Right. So if this technology, more widely used, would reduce the murder rate by 50 percent, it would be all for more use of this type of technology, uh, reduce it 100 uh, percent. I mean, if we could slash murder rates and crime rates through the use of this technology, I think it's a great thing. But it touches on the, the bigger issue that I often like to come back to, and that is it's a good idea to conduct yourself as though you were on surveillance camera you know, all the time, right? It is though your text messages and your emails and your live streams and uh, your conversations at work were just uh, broadcast to the world. Now, there are certainly some exceptions. It's just a, a useful tool, I find, for trying to de de decipher you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. Uh, just imagine what you were saying and doing was captured on camera and then broadcast to the world. And uh, I think the more and more camera use we have out in the world, I think it'll, it'll generally have a good effect on people's behavior. And I'm generally for increased use of facial recognition software because people behave a lot better when we know who they are, right? If you had to go through life wearing a, a name tag, right? As you walk through a big city, as you're at a, a club and you're wearing a name tag, you would behave a lot better, right? It, it has a good effect on you to understand that you're being monitored. Streaming at 5 a.m., bro, I was wide awake at 1 a.m., and I, I tried to stay in bed. I really did. So I managed to stay in bed till 3.13 a.m., and I was listening to a biography of uh, Milton Friedman, the, the great free market economist from the University of Chicago. But uh, by 3.13, I said, okay, I've kept myself in bed for, for two hours. It's time to get up and get going. No, it doesn't have anything to do with the Adderall. I've been waking up around 2, 3 a.m. For, for many, many months, for years, in fact. So I, I sleep, ha haven't noticed any change. I'm on such a low dose of Adderall, maybe a higher dose. So I'm only on uh, five milligrams twice a day of Adderall. So I went to bed at 8 p.m. So I got, I got over four hours of good quality sleep and then just uh, light napping, zoning in and out of sleep for a couple more hours listening to this uh, Milton Friedman biography. I need to get a new CPAP. My CPAP broke down. Can't help but notice you can't sleep all of a sudden. Ah, sleep has been an uh, ongoing problem in my life. My father 
would get up at 2 a.m. So that was his pattern from about age 27 until his 60s because that's how he got his two PhDs done. He'd get guys at about 2 a.m. and work on his PhD theses. So when I was in Australia, I was on vacation, on holiday, not on Adderall. I was usually waking up around uh, 3 a.m. I don't like it. All right. I'd rather have much more normal sleeping hours, but uh, that's that's the card that life has dealt me right now. I find as long as I can get at least four hours, I'm you know I'm functioning pretty well. But uh, good to see Ricardo, man. Long time no talk. So here's the the main purpose for this stream: a book that profoundly influenced me in 2018 was uh, called "Virtually You: The The Dangerous Powers of the E Personality." a book by a psychiatrist in the Silicon Valley, Elias Abujade, And he notices that when we go online, that it becomes often a fairly compulsive experience. We often get a euphoric high. And uh, this is the same sort of euphoric high we see in all sorts of impulsive control disorders, such as pathological gambling. And we often develop an exaggerated sense of our own abilities when we do something like what I'm doing right now. We often develop a superior attitude towards others. And then we develop out of that a new moral code that we adopt online. We become increasingly prone to impulsive behavior. And we have a tendency to regress to childlike states. And we we often share things that we wouldn't share face to face. And then this behavior that we adapt online, we tend to take into our daily life and it becomes dysfunctional. Right, I was reflecting, main purpose of this stream, I was reflecting on this episode of Jean-Francois Garopi on December 7th. Had is one of these people who's increasingly disliking our countries. And he's disliking our countries because of the bringing in of an absolutely foreign conflict into our nations. A conflict that we shouldn't have had a bit of care for for the last hundred years. It should have never become a question of so much importance what's happening between Israel and Gaza and whatever. But we have imported this conflict in full. And uh, yeah, we, hopefully one day it, uh, it goes away. Hopefully one day the only people who care about Israel-Gaza is people who live in Gaza and people who live in Israel. Uh, as a last news item tonight, because I wanted to do a relatively short show, Dead Star says, Hey Jeff, there's a young British YouTuber going by the name of Stephen J. James. I remember that uh, that name, Stephen J. James. Uh, he was on the regular chat here. Uh, he says, who I think is on the he is a longtime followers of yours, and I think he is on the precipice of remember. abandoning his old life and jumping ahead headfirst into life as a right-wing commentator. Do you have any advice or encouragement for the future dissident? Well, I don't remember exactly Stephen J. James, what he was saying, but I remember the name, seeing him a lot on... Uh, on super chat. So life as a dissident is not going to be an easy, happy life. All right. By by definition, if you're a dissident, you're going to be outside of what's considered socially acceptable. So whether you're on the left or the right, however your dissidence expresses itself, most people don't enjoy being around dissonance or dissidents. So it, it's not a happy life when you're a dissident. So I think a more effective life strategy is to think what you like and talk about dissonant ideas with good friends, but don't don't adopt dissident as your definition. 
right? D- don't don't adopt dissident as your way of life, right? Don't adopt dissident as your strategy. I- I'm going to quote Jesus here: "Be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves." Right? Be smart, but uh, don't don't conduct your life as though you're outside the mainstream and that you're you know, waging war on things that uh, most people consider sacred. Chats and chats. Uh, you know, there was a guy uh, that was preparing for a modern-day debate, and I spoke to him in private, and he was, uh, he was saying, uh, how do you survive? How do you get a job once, uh, once everyone knows your name and your face? And I was like, uh, no, you don't get it. Uh, there's no having a job. <laughs> It depends on how prestigious the job is, right? If it's a job as an assistant, a, a secretary, uh, as a, a plumber, as a laborer, right? If, you, if, if it is a non-prestigious job, people don't care that much about what you say online. The more prestigious the job, the more easily canceled you are, right? The more responsibility you have, the more care is expected that you will take with the things that you say publicly. Once you go, uh, once you go, public commentary in politics, and especially dissident and uh, opposed to the Israeli axis, uh, you're done for the rest of your life. You you lose a lot of rights, you lose a lot of possibilities, and you certainly won't have a job at a uh, at a normie place. You may have a job with your uncle who knows you, and he gets you into a a position that no one will see you. Uh, but you, it will be through friends. If you have a job or through contract work where you don't reveal your, your identity. Or it's simply a non-prestigious, non-elite position. All right? There are a lot of people out there looking for workers, and uh, many employers are not going to Google you. But it's basically finished, this idea that you can use your name and get some work. So I would say that to Stephen J. James. If you do make the jump, be sure that you have plenty of resources in advance that you have more than you need. Don't be just on the, I need this month's salary to survive. Be on, on the... So the United States, the best of my knowledge, is the only Western nation where men can't automatically qualify for welfare. Right? So I think that's why there's been a skyrocketing of disability claims, is that that's, that's the way that uh, men, for example, can, can get welfare. So pretty much any other country, men are eligible for welfare. But in the United States, essentially only, only women um, and mothers are. The outlook for the future beyond, I know how I would survive for the next six months or the whole year, even if I was to have zero income. That is how you have to think. And Bitcoin is your friend in this case. And being clever about your Bitcoin investment and trying to sell at the... Yeah, pushing Bitcoin just strikes me as incredibly dodgy and bad advice, right? There's no inherent use or value to cyber currencies. Right time and buy at the right time. That will allow you, uh, alongside the, the money that you make in super chats and commentary. Right. If the value of Bitcoin w- went to zero, right, the world would not be diminished. Right? There's no inherent reason that uh, Bitcoin needs to be worth more than a penny. That will allow you to... To have long-term sustainability. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have much to say. Look, long-term sustainability is not primarily about economic resources. Long-term sustainability is primarily about social resources. It's primarily about the quality of your relationships with other people. 
right? The biggest problem with being a dissident and a social outcast and being ostracized is not the economic problem, right? The economic problem is a symptom of a much deeper problem, and that is that you're going to feel very alone and disliked in life. Now, I probably think more than I should about whether or not certain people like me, all right? I'll admit I probably have more anxious attachment style than is ideal, right? I, I recognize probably two-thirds of the population are securely attached, and then they're, they're not as anxious as I am about my my relationships. But uh, life as a, an ostracized person, as a dissident, someone on the fringe, is very difficult. Just look nature, right? Uh, animals on the fringe of the herd are much more likely to get cut down, right? Animals that live in the middle of the herd are much more likely to survive. If you're on the fringe, you're much more vulnerable to predators. And when hard times strike, they're going to be much harder. So your back might go out on you. You might get food poisoning. You might need a a trip to the hospital. Uh, You might just uh, lose a job or just struggle with any of, you know, the the common setbacks in life. And all these struggles are infinitely more difficult when you don't have friends, when you don't have a connection to your family, when you don't have family, when you don't have extended family, when you're not part of a community. Right? That's the biggest price to pay. It's not the economic one. The biggest thing you have to prepare for being a dissident is do you have friends that will survive your dissonance? Uh, as a counseling, other than follow your heart and follow what you are convinced is the greatest quality content. And f- Follow your heart is not good advice. Right? The, the, the heart is incredibly changeable, deceptive organ. And saying follow your heart is like saying follow your eyes, right? Just go do what your eyes say is attractive to you. That's that's terrible advice. Follow what people like and never forget that this job is not about expressing your emotions. It's not about expressing how you think. It's about producing thought for the other. That's a market. You, you are producing something that someone else wants. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So this is why JF and many other people have been able to make a living offering their opinions because they recognize that they are offering their opinions for a particular market. And so they tailor their opinions. They essentially tailor their soul. They tailor their production. All right. They tailor their thinking. All right. To give people what they want. You're giving them essentially reassurance. You're providing comfort for them in an anxiety provoking world by letting people know if they come to your channel, you will reinforce their prejudices. You will reinforce their most deeply held beliefs. You will provide comfort that they are right, even though they're struggling in life and uh, there seems to be so much empirical evidence against what they hold dear. So for for JF, he recognized, for example, that his his audience is overwhelmingly anti-vax. So JF Garapi will reach for the for the lowest quality articles that uh, will support an anti-vax position because that's what his audience wants to hear. So this is a commitment that is completely removed from optimizing for truth, right? This is about feeding an audience what it wants to hear. No matter how you feel in your heart, it's not necessarily interesting how you feel in your heart. It doesn't matter that you have this idea or that idea. What matters is can you... Wait, didn't he just say follow your heart? And now he's saying don't follow your heart? You produce something that people want to consume. That is the only standard by which you can have success in this field. Great A. 
Well, it, 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 it depends on what you count as success. He is, I think, talking there primarily in economic terms. So, yes, in economic terms, you need to get enough viewership and financial support to pay your bills, and that's what counts as success. But you can use live streaming and count it as success for other reasons than paying your bills. For example, I had a tough day on Monday. I had a painful day on Monday. I had a humiliating day on Monday. I was feeling quite low on Monday. All right. I was feeling somewhat uh, helpless and frustrated on Monday. And so I decided to live stream to regain a sense of mastery. All right. So live streaming can just be a thing that you're good at, that you enjoy doing, that provides some uh, knowledge and uh, information and entertainment to people. So people who love to play chess and who are good at chess, all right, they get out there and, and play chess. Right, people who are good at basketball play basketball. People who are good at prayer and meditation get out there, engage in prayer and meditation. People who are good at making money, all right, they work longer hours than people who are not good at making money. You all want to do what we're good at. Live streaming can be just you know one more thing that you have some mastery of that enables you to regain your sense of self when you have setbacks in life. So many reasons to live stream, not just about. Uh, uh, paying the bills. Right, a quick little burst here by Matthew Brown from Decoding the Gurus. He's, he's talking about, uh, he likes Noam Chomsky, but, and I, I think this is excellent analysis, right? There are a lot of you know great thinkers out there, but then their thinking often seems to get stuck on, on a track, and then it just proceeds in one direction, no matter the evidence. I generally do like a lot of things about him, um, like his style. Um, fashion. Your fashion. I think I just like those sorts of academic types. Um, but um, I, I don't like, and I, I don't have a problem with the fact that he's, he's hard left and his politics are what they are. That's great. But I don't like the sort of jaded, like one-eyed view of, of things, which just filters out everything that doesn't fit his ideological stance. Um, and as he says, um, as you say, twists things to suit. Like if you want to get a good understanding of, say, Finnish, <laughs> right. So Chomsky received a lot of applause from you know the left for some of his early work. And then he just kept going back to that well again and again and again. And so he only sees things through a, a certain prism. And that's, that's a danger also with the e-personality. You get a success seeing certain things uh, appealing to a certain audience. And then you just go back to that well again and again and again, telling a particular audience what it wants to hear essentially getting captured by your audience. And so you become willing to just blind yourself to truth. You stop yourself from, from growing. You, you know, you're afraid to rock the boat with your audience because you become you know, so dependent on the applause and the kudos that they give you. Foreign policy, defense policy in the 20th century. You could do a lot better than from listening to Chomsky. You, you yeah. can listen to Perun, a uh, young guy, young Australian YouTuber who's been um, praised by uh, um, across the board for, he just does these detailed, very descriptive um, coverage of, of topics like that. And it's incredibly informative. And it's good because he doesn't have, he doesn't inject a kind of ideological lens where everything gets filtered through to make a particularly hot take. He's, he's, he's giving you um, a straightforward account. And um, so Chomsky is an incredibly clever guy. Right. So the dangers of, of doing a live streaming show on, on politics or culture or any other hot button issue is that you, you, d you develop a certain ideology and then you just become blind to any arguments against it because your audience just wants to hear one particular perspective. Right, here's some more highlights from this terrific 
book from 2011, Virtually You, The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. Just uh, changed my life and really helped shift me in a more productive direction. It helped me see that what I was doing online, all right, was part of the, the real world and would feed back into my real world behavior. So the way we see ourselves, all right, self-esteem is the reputation we have with ourselves, all right? The way we see ourselves, the way we evaluate ourselves changes as we go online and develop these new personality traits that we, you know, nurture in the virtual world. So exaggerated sense of our own abilities is a danger doing something like this, a superior attitude towards others. Right, I can bring someone onto the show and kick someone off the show, ban someone from the chat. Right, I can uh, be quite uh, derogatory towards people because I have a microphone and you know four live viewers. All right, we tend to adopt you know a new moral code to all our relationships, and the online world is is a type of relationship. All right, when you connect with people and bond with people and develop a rhythm with people, out of that connection comes a moral code. So we also become much more prone to impulsive behavior and a tendency to regress to childlike states. So these traits combine into a whole new you, right? So the way we act, the way we interact, the way we speak, the way we read, think, and negotiate our urges and our goals online are remarkably different from the ways we handle things offline, all right? And so these online traits then become imported into our offline life. So we start talking to people in the real world the way we have learned to <laughs> talk to people on Twitter, right? And we start trying to reconfigure. Unconsciously, we will start reconfiguring our real-world conversations you know, in the image of an online chat room, right? Without even intending to, what you say in an online chat will definitely feed into your real-world behavior. So it's a subtle reconfiguring of our psychological landscape. And so you have the phenomenon where you really like a lot of your friends, uh, colleagues, and acquaintances, members of your community in real life, but you increasingly have difficulty separating the flesh and blood real human being with all your memories attached to what she does online. And so people are often you know, far more obnoxious online than they are in real life and then that will have negative repercussions of course on their real life all right we create an e-identity right we create a virtual personality that is greater than its parts and is full of life and vitality all right there are some advantages to being unfettered by the old rules of behaving the old rules of social exchange the old rules about etiquette and netiquette all right so we get a virtual personality which will tend to be more assertive less restrained a little darker and sexier than what goes on in our real face-to-face -face life. And then this can act as a liberating force for the real-life individual. It can allow a person to transcend debilitating shyness, let go of inhibitions, to forge connections and friendships that would be impossible otherwise. So sometimes the virtual you can complement the actual you and act as an extension of your real-life persona. So if you can do that, then live streaming can be a, a valuable part of, of your life. Right? if it improves the quality of your life. But if your live streaming restricts your life, it starts decimating your relationships and your connections and your sources of income and your other sources of self-esteem, then what you're doing online is not working for you, all right? 
because the online self very easily becomes dangerous, becomes irresponsible, runs roughshod over proper sense of caution and self-control. A little bit of success online, and it can easily encourage us to pursue unrealistic and unhealthy goals. It will make us feel smarter and more knowledgeable than is warranted. It encourages us to behave more selfishly and recklessly. There are these immediate fantasy fulfillment rewards online, and so it becomes you know, difficult to operate with, with proper caution and self-control. Right? We can reinvent portions of our personality that we're unhappy with, and then we can feel free to engage in behaviors that our more responsible selves would put a stop to in the harsh light of day in the real world. So there is a cost to feeling too powerful online or having too much fun online, right? You'll very likely have more tension at home. You will uh, start uh, spending more time online than is warranted. You're more likely to have problems in the workplace. The boss will reprimand you for, say, tactless emails or for inappropriate things you say and do. You may be distracted in the classroom because the, the real world, right, uh, it's, it's hard to keep up with the attention and the excitement and the thrills and chills of, of being online. And so the habits that we develop online can start compromising our attention span. And then we may well begin to prefer the online version of who we are, right? So mindless web surfing without any thought, without awareness of the passage of time is a very common symptom of dissociation. Heavy video and internet game use, right? It's a form of dissociation where you become increasingly unmoored from reality. So we all tend to behave less inhibitedly online. We tend to act out and speak out more frequently and more intensely online than we would in person. So the normal break system, which normally keeps our thoughts and words and behaviors in check, it tends to malfunction on the information superhighway, right? So you can call this the online disinhibition effect. It is the foundation upon which we start stacking up the building blocks of the e-personality. So you can be anonymous online. You can be invisible online. There's a sense of a loss of boundaries between people. There's a lack of any real hierarchy in much of cyberspace. As the New Yorker cartoon puts it on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, right? So when you're anonymous, people have the opportunity to separate their actions online from their in-person lifestyle and identity so they feel less vulnerable about self-disclosing and acting out. And then you can convince yourself that your online behaviors aren't really you that they don't reflect on you, that you're not responsible for the consequences of your actions. That gives you carte blanche to engage in them with more abandon. Now, if you start misbehaving in real life, people will avert their eyes. People will remove themselves from your company. They'll look away. It's hard in real life often to discuss things that are incredibly embarrassing. But uh, when we're online, all right, we don't have those disinhibiting effects, right? And so we can behave you know, much more effusively and unrestrainedly, which is frequently good, but uh, can frequently be maladaptive. A little bit more from discussion between the Decoding the Gurus host, Chris Kavanaugh and Matt Brown. Oh, God, like, really, we're really liked now. Are we? Okay, well, I'm going to keep talking this every night. <laughs> so I, there's a one thing that I, uh, like with Chomsky and stuff, that a lot of people, Robert Wright does this as well, says like, there's it was really hard to criticize the establishment or to present a counter opinion to like this, you know, the dominant, the dominant neoliberal paradigm. 
earlier. And I'm just like, when? Because in my entire lifetime, all there's always been like a very vocal and quite popular criticism of, of capitalism, criticism of like uh, mainstream, moderate, left wing type stuff. Like, you know, Naomi Klein, Naomi Klein, Green Gets the Machine, all that kind of stuff was like very popular when I was a, a teenager. So I, I don't know if they're talking about like a time before I was alive, but the notion that there were no strong criticisms of like Bush doctrine era. I'm like, there was tons. I seen it every day and it might be a function of not being in the US, but even then I, I remember lots of like US based criticism. So I don't, oh, I don't yeah. know. Oh yeah, this in, in Australia, there's heaps of versions of Donald Trump's keyword. John Pilger, for instance. I mean, ever since Vietnam, this, it's, it's been a strong, um, it's not underrepresented in the discourse. Um, but I mean, what I would find really interesting is like people from uh, like Chomsky or Robert Wrights or John Pilger or there's a long, it's a whole group of people. Uh, I'd like for them to um, talk to how they see, they've come to such a similar opinion about things internationally as the mega style isolationists, oh. you know, and the um, like ultra conservative reactionary types. Also, they all have the same opinion about meddling in in these sorts of affairs. Um, sure, they come at it for, for different reasons. Um, they'll cite different reasons, but they all come to the same point. It, um, that's interesting, I think. There was a recent crossover between the trigonometry guys and Aaron Bastani. I think that's how you pronounce his name, the founder of Novara Media in the UK. And Novara Media like kind of came out of the Corbyn um, uh, momentum movement. So they're, you know, they're like uh, left wing, uh, I guess, like kind of the equivalent of the AOC wing in, in the US, right? Very strongly critical of the like uh, neo Blairite faction in Labour or that kind of thing, or mainstream media coverage of Jeremy Corbyn, right? But the interesting thing for me was... Uh, Aaron and the trigonometry guys, you know, the trigonometry guys are basically right-leaning people and Aaron is like pretty far left, but they've got a lot of overlap in their mm. criticism of the mainstream. And if they just stick on that part, they tend to agree, like fundamentally, you know, mainstream media has failed, the real news is in the alternative, uh, the, there's, you can't get proper critiques of the establishment, the blah, 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 all of, all of that kind of thing they agree on. And then when they did try to focus on the parts where they might conflict, like, uh, the trigonometry guys tried to get him to talk about Venezuela and this kind of thing. Um, he, he was pretty deft at like dancing around it. But the interesting thing was when he, the reason that he didn't create much controversy was he focused on arguing for, you know, increased rights for workers and like a kind of populist message targeting the workers, the real people who are pushed down by the, you know, the 1%. And that's similar to their narrative. They just want to say, well, what are you going to do about capitalism? Right. And, and Bastani was yeah, so populism can be something of the left and the right, and what uh, underlies populism is a distrust of the ruling elite and of the establishment. And so it used to be associated with the left, right, being anti-establishment, but uh, over the last, what, 15 years, it's become increasingly associated with, with the right, and Donald Trump has plans to replace about 50,000 civil servants if he wins re-election. Just had a, a second thought about if you're going to become a, a live streamer. So no matter where you go, that's still you, all right? And any any blockages in you, any dysfunctions in you are going to shine through everything that you do. So the healthier you are, I think, the more likely it is that you can do live streaming without damaging your life. But if you have, say, psychological needs to believe that you're smarter than everyone else, even though all you know, life experience is to the contrary, right, you're going to seize onto you know, anti-establishment perspectives because at least you see through the BS. Right? Your, your peers may be more successful, more, more happy, more, more connected, 
than you, but at least you see through the, the BS. So you don't want to be taking positions on vaccines or on you know intervention in Ukraine or on politics or, or religion from a place of dysfunction and trying to make up for the failures in your real life by you know throwing yourself into some cause or throwing yourself into some you know anti-establishment or pro-establishment perspective just to shore up your, your sense of self, right? Your sense of self should not come from live streaming, right? Your, your sense of self should come from the opinion that you have of yourself and that you've done the right things, right? That you're continuing to do the right things. I had a very difficult day on Monday, but I just kept doing the right things, right? I made money. I served my clients. I, you know, I got uh, walked six miles. I worked out. I, you know, engaged in prayer and meditation. I talked to twelve step sponsee. I you know, listened to some uh, inspiring twelve uh, step uh, talks from the Daily Reprieve. All right, I, I did the right things. You know, I was outside. I was in the sun. I you know I was connecting with people in in real life and over the phone. So I, even though I felt lousy, right, I just kept doing the right things. And when you just keep doing the right things then you'll tend to have a better opinion of yourself. So if you've earned, you know, self-respect, then you're much less likely to, you know, go off the rails when you're live streaming. Uh, kind of mm, literate enough to present everything in a way that was, that was pretty pal palpable, palatable for their audience. So AI, like if you listen to that discussion, there's like very, very little conflict and you can see where the overlap is in those worldviews, right? There's, there is also disjunctions, but I think, that that speaks to the the kind of they do both want uh, a kind of populist uprising of sorts. You finished? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get stuck on that and geopolitics and Tomsky. That's okay. fine. Okay. Another good little bit here. That the bar what? thing was fun. That's my dream. Yeah. That's my dream job, Chris. I no, it free. isn't. <laughs> it isn't because the good thing about bar. They're just talking about their most difficult jobs. And uh, Matt Brown, the Australian, he mentioned working in landscaping. And that was tough. I remember I was just swinging, swinging a pick and a shovel, like you know, blazing ditches through very hard ground in 100-plus degree Sacramento summer weather. And uh, then carrying uh, 30 pounds, 50 pounds of... Uh, fertilizer or of uh, grass turf that we were laying out. Yeah, I, I remember how brutal that was. But then on my fourth day on that job, I, I went to the home of a man, a real estate developer named Doug Hanslick, who, who died a few years ago. And he was just so kind to me. He just, he just noticed me. I, I just felt seen, noticed I was from Australia, just a little chit chat and just feeling seen, just feeling noticed. He introduced me to his daughter, just feeling just even tangentially a little bit like a human being instead of just a machine. And just that personal touch just completely transformed my relationship with landscaping. It was my relationship with the Hanslick family that just completely transformed my relationship with landscaping. I, I just hated it. It was absolutely brutal. And I've, I've had this in, in white collar jobs where the work was just brutal. It was just so detailed oriented. It was so demanding. There was just so much of it. You know, I felt like I was in hell. And then, and then I connected with people around me. All right. At first I felt like, oh, nobody likes me. But then I realized that, you know, they, they might like me a little bit 
And then I thought, you know, I really like my boss and I like my supervisor. And, you know, I like this company where I work and I see that I can give something to these people. I, I have, you know, valuable gifts to give. And then sometimes you come alive when you notice that you've disappointed people who care about you. And I think that's also an excellent rule for live streaming. Right? Think about your best friends watching your live streams, right? For me, it's an incredibly powerful emotion. It's like taking a cold shower when I realize that I've disappointed people who I, I care about. And so by connecting to that sense that I've disappointed people I care about, that I've disappointed an institution that I care about, and that this, there is, say, an opportunity here for me to contribute and that I do have skills and I, I can do something valuable here. And then what at one moment was just like a hellscape, just you know, an unrelenting flow of, of work with, with no meaning, suddenly the work becomes imbued with meaning. And so too with the landscaping, it was brutal work, but when it became imbued with meaning that through landscaping, I would get to connect to really nice people who I just loved being around and it was an opportunity to be of service to them, such as the Hanslick family, right? that just completely transformed my relationship to work. So uh, Sydney, Australia, for example, most beautiful city in the world, but the beauty of Sydney is secondary to me compared to the people who are there, right? What, what gives Sydney meaning for me is the people who are there. What, what gives Los Angeles meaning for, for me is that I've lived here for 27 years and I know people and I've, you know, memories embedded with my connections with people as I go down different streets. And so the, the most brutal work or the most difficult situation, for me, it just becomes utterly transformed when I'm able to connect with other people. And so if you can use your live streaming to connect with people who you like and respect, as opposed to just using your live streaming to connect to the lowest common denominator, then live streaming can become a valuable addition to your life, right? You want to Build your live streaming around your life, not your life around your live streaming, right? Your live streaming should be in addition to your life. It should expand your life. It should make, make things better. It should just be another thing in your life that you're good at rather than something that creates bad habits, that uh, fractures friendships and, and relationships and makes you ostracized and uh, causes you a loss of income. Or just drinking <laughs> in, in the bar. The bad thing about being in a bar is when you're on the other side and there's tons of people that want drinks and they're all at that stage they're all just like blowing the fucking smoke and i'm smoking at the time but you know like we just being covered in smoke at the end of a shift that was that was terrible but but that was good because i got that job because it was irish so yeah there we go those are bad jobs um but they weren't terrible they were just like low wage and a bit of a pain in the arse so what can you do um this one matt it's quite a long but a a bad job becomes a good job when you like the people there or when you're able to find meaning in your work, right? It's not how difficult the work is. It's not how immediately viscerally exciting the work is, right? I temperamentally have a hard time paying attention to details that are not exciting. I think it's maybe an ADHD symptom or a narcissism symptom. But when I can, can connect that these details are important to people that I care about or to an organization that I care about, then I find it easier to pay attention and to do my job. Long one. I'll read it for you. Um, Everyone. Suggestions about how to cultivate a healthy epistemic network. How might one develop stronger heuristics? I have a friend who's doing his own research via YouTube. Distrustful of institutions and government. Falling fast into conspiracy maelstroms. He's a young guy, smart, uh, in my opinion. I hope they head him off. So more positive seeds. Matt mentioned sometimes people are lost, possibly due to heavy circumstances, and it's not easy to dislodge, assuage those psychological mechanisms in the face of obstinacy or their ways of getting through. That's from... Strickaform Trickster, good name. Um, do you have thought, thoughts? 
Oh, gee, yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Because that's probably a better answer than I can give. Because, like, I do... I, this is something... I think we agree, Chris. This is, like, probably the best advice you could give to anyone, which is don't try to do your own research, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Develop a healthy epistemic network so you can you can figure out what sources of information to trust because it's a big... Right. So which studies do you trust? All right. You hear studies cited all the time. All right. And so Matt Brown is saying, you know, don't try to necessarily just figure that out on your own because it, it requires a certain sophistication and an ability with statistics to ascertain, you know, which, which studies are more likely reliable than other studies. Instead, you know, find people with expertise in areas that you're interested in who, who have produced a body of work that you respect. World, it's, it's a complicated world. There's a lot of people who specialize in various complicated things. And if you can figure out the ones who aren't demented in some way, and you can sort of aggregate the qualified expert opinion, then, you know. Well, it's not about trusting the experts full stop. It's about finding experts that you trust, right? Who, who, who have a track record that's worthy of your respect. So, for example, uh, Charles Murray, Steve Saylor, uh, these are examples of uh, experts that I trust. And uh, there are many other people with PhDs in uh, areas of, say, intelligence who I do not trust. It's not to say they're going to be perfect, but you'll get a reasonably good view of things better than if you went off and tried to do, you know, going off all kinds of weird websites or watching random YouTube videos to figure out what's the truth about vaccines or even what's the truth about Ukraine or something like that, right? There are, it's a bit vaguer when it comes to topics like, you know, geopolitics than very factual things like climate change or vaccines. But that even so, I think there are people who, who, who have a relatively dispassionate kind of thing and have been doing this for like 10 years, like it's their career, right? And you know, I'm not totally discounting the, what Jordan Peterson or people like that would say, which is that there are institutional orthodoxies and themes and stuff. And sometimes the experts can go be, have their own skew. But so I think, so in terms, so I at least seem to find it easy to, like when I want to figure out what's the deal with COVID, I, I didn't find it that hard to, to like access the relevant articles and literature, even like, and when I say literature, I mean the academic literature, but even in the academic literature, there are like high level summaries, you know, like there are sort of overview articles that are non-technical and summarize a lot of stuff. And when it, and there are lots of little flags that tell you, okay, is this, is this a good journal? Are these, you know, you can just sort of tell, so you got to use a bit of. Yeah. Tucker Carlson made a good point that I had not thought of. And that was that uh, farmer was the biggest advertiser on, on cable news. So I have a middle position on farmer, I think. Some of what they do is great, and some of what they do is not great. So I'm all for vaccines that have been, you know, approved for use in the United States, England, and Australia. I am much more skeptical of the use of SSRIs for depression. I'm sure that they're appropriate for some people, but for many people who are on them, they're receiving more harm than good. I think, you know, with, with many medical issues, yeah, you should definitely get a second opinion that uh, dentists in particular are probably the least ethical of any of the professions? I don't know. There's a bit of social intuition involved, I suppose, in figuring out what's trustworthy and what's not. But what I realize is that someone like Strigaform's friend there is that, is that by his or her lights, or he, he, he's, he could be smart and stuff like that. But if, if you're a bit, you could be smart, but you could just be a little bit naive or you could have some pre-existing unacknowledged biases and whatever. And that can lead you to kind of view the wrong sources as trustworthy. And then it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling cycle where it's just the same kind of not wormhole, rabbit hole that happens with conspiracy theories can happen with just forming your view on, on any topic. So I don't know. It's, do you have any like tips? Like what's, what's the, what's the real Chris? How do you help someone? Yeah. So I, I do think there's an issue that you run into that. Yeah. The, the better the reputation you have with yourself, right? The more that you are taking 
the, the, the right path in your life, right? The less psychological need you'll have to, you know, feel better through a certain type of politics. The, the people offering the guru-ish conspiratorial, the matrix is bullshit stuff, have the benefit of their narratives being more appealing and to be like kind of uh, indulgent of the person that's on the... That's a great point. All right. People who do what I'm doing now full time, they are all tapped into appealing narratives, right? That's the way to succeed as a pundit and a live streamer on the news is to be able to give appealing narratives, right? Everyone loves an appealing story. But uh, the truth is rarely, you know, that appealing. So you can optimize for attention. You can optimize for income. You can optimize for fame or you can optimize for seeking the truth. I strive to optimize for seeking the truth. Receiving it, right? Like you are seeing through things. It's a good thing that you're questioning stuff. Don't, all those people are going to feed you. Like you want to see I'm right? Just watch how they react to you consuming my content, right? And then... When people do react, they say, see, you know, they, I told you people were just going, they don't even know the topic and they're just dismissing it, right? So you're like kind of stuck. Right. If you optimize for, for truth, you're not going to get captured by the audience. So Stephen J. Smith said on my show Monday that he, he gets, you know, all of his self-esteem as a live streamer from the audience reaction. And that's the most visceral and immediate and, and easy way to get self-esteem is from when other people tell you you're doing the right thing. What's more difficult but more valuable is to develop a good you know, internal radar for understanding when you're doing a good thing. So as I, I grew older, I was able to read things that I've I'd written and be able to authenticate them for myself. Yeah, this is good whether or not I get audience applause. I can put on a good show whether or not you know, anyone in the chat agrees with me. So it's a very dangerous thing to put your self-esteem in, in the hands of other people, right? Now, we should be affected to some degree by other people's opinions, but we should be careful in choosing whose opinions most count to us and our own opinion of ourselves, which is a fancy description for, for self-esteem, right? Our own opinion of ourself should be, generally speaking, more important to us than other people's opinion, right? As long as other people's opinion is more important to us than our own opinion of ourselves, we are in a highly a necessarily vulnerable situation. Because part of the reason that those people are good is that they, uh, in a way, vaccinate their followings from most of the criticisms that they'll receive, right? And uh, for that reason, it's it's like kind of hard because most of the ways that you would dig someone out would involve triggering the things that the people said to watch out for, right? And then, um, but, so, but with that, I do think one of the things that works, and I think it probably works more for young guys, um, is whenever there is content that is, taking down someone that they've invested in and doing it in like a quite uh, engaging way that like, but that systematically shows that the person is wrong, right? You know, like, cause like the Ben Shapiro style content is, you know, I know that's like a little bit older, but that kind of stuff is popular. But I, I think that when you see people breaking down all the stupid stuff that someone has said, right? And kind of putting it together and they make it in a relatively um, slick yeah. video. That, that's why ContraPoints and stuff got popular, right? Because she yeah. didn't come I, across I, as patronizing. And also, and so what's his name? He's like, I came on our show, Chris. You really like him. He does quite detailed... Um, CoffeeZilla or Debunk the Funk? CoffeeZilla is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. But, but I think you're just only there. I think that helps, right? Like, you can't... So, I remember I had a 12-step sponsor who had emphasized to me, stay in the middle of the herd, that animals on the fringe of the herd, animals disconnected from the herd, are most likely to get picked off. So, 
my sponsor would encourage me to show up to 12-step meetings early and help set up to, to stay late, to put things away, to go to you know social hours with other people from the program, to get people's phone numbers, to start talking to people regularly. So life in the middle of the herd just works better for most people, right? Life on the fringe does not work well for, for most people. All right, everything in life becomes tougher and more difficult and you're far more vulnerable on the fringe. And if you haven't spent time in the middle of the herd, you don't know how powerful it is. We get our primary source of energy is, is not, you know, caffeine or energy drinks or modafinil or Adderall. Our primary sense, our primary reservoir that we can draw from for energy is our connection with other people. Right? Getting on the same page with someone else, creating a shared reality with someone else, getting into a rhythm with someone else and building a connection with someone else, building a shared reality, all right? That is the most powerful form of, of energy, all right? And out of that, that bond comes an ethic. You can't change someone's worldview in one fell swoop, right? You can't take it from the top, if you like. It's like a pyramid that's supported by all these facts and you know assertions and so on. And it's kind of, you. it sounds bad, but you undermine the structure by actually quibbling with the details and go, well, hang on. That, that that side of this but you, we can see that that's actually just factually incorrect and you actually have to do that like 50 times and then eventually the person themselves may go well actually maybe the all of the sort of broad sweeping assumptions that are built on top of those little premises and facts um might not be supported and they kind of have to they have to have to, they have to kind of change their mind themselves right but you can probably help them by by quibbling with the facts that uh, that are the foundations of that structure the problem i see is that a lot of people that are good at that are themselves resting on a rather strong ideological perspective which Okay, looking at the chat, uh, Phil says, that sounds very proactive, all that AA help. If that's not at the front of the herd, the only next step would be leading meetings. Well, uh, I've led many 12-step meetings. There's, there's, no, uh, no, there's no great prestige in that, right? Nobody runs AA or NA or, or DA, right? Uh, it's uh, pretty democratic, right? People can run for office to serve on a board, but th there's no great prestige and there's no power that comes with uh, leading a meeting. So if, if you want to get, you know, get, get a feeling that you have a powerful position, all right, you're not going to get it from 12-step, generally speaking, unless it's some you know, bizarre perversion of it. But uh, you know, people in 12-step, you know, they, they pitch in together, they clean rooms together, they set up together, they allocate different tasks, but to the extent that you're leading anything in, in 12 step, right? The, the theory is, and the practice is, what I've seen, is that to the extent you, you, you lead anything, it's by being of service to other people. They're offering them replacement for the, the guru that they're criticizing. And yeah. so yeah. you often yeah. are just treating in, like, this, this is why you do see people swing between, like, you know, I, political ideologies which seem really incompatible. Um, and, and then become strong denouncers of their previous political ideology. And I, I think a lot of people would benefit from, instead of focusing on how they need to, you know, destroy the past thing that they were involved in, more reflecting on, like, why was I taken in by that, right? And, and uh, adjusting the things that made that happen. But I, I also think, like, I'll take an example that I think is relevant that I was just dealing with today. Um, Alexandros Marinos, Brett Weinstein superfan, has produced this thread, which, which supposedly is giving people, like, a statistical, critical... Um, rigorous takedown of a study and the bias in the study and these errors in the pre-registration, right? And Alexandros didn't know what a p-value is six months ago. Like he completely got it wrong in the thread and then he was corrected and he just showed he didn't understand p-values. But now he has a thread 
right? Like doing a statistical breakdown of the statistical flaws in this complex like study about ivermectin, of course, right? Matt, now the thing is when when I when you see that, right? So to engage with Alexandros's argument, what he wants you to do is go and try to argue about the specifics that he's pointed out in the study, and he will spend ages and you'll get like bogged down talking about specific details of individual studies, which Alexandros has misinterpreted in a Right. So the healthier you are, right, the less less need you'll have to distort reality. Right. And the more that you think socially, you think out loud and you interact with people and you share your perspective and then you get feedback on it, right? The more effective you'll be. And we all have to reflect on why we've been taken in by absolute nonsense in the past. Right. We we all have vulnerabilities. Why why did this you know form of nonsense so so appeal to me in the past. And for me, much of it just came out of some narcissistic tendencies that I really wanted to believe some fringe idea because I would then feel like I was smarter than everyone else, that I was, you know, braver than everyone else. I was willing to to go there that at least I saw through the the BS. Right? If if your life sucks and you need some basis to claim that although your life sucks, at least you see through the BS, that's a really poor basis for seeking out truth, right? So if you build a life filled with, you know, friendships, relationships, a family, and uh, that will usually be a happy life, that's the best proof against needing, you know, ant to produce antisocial content, right? People who have a good life don't want it blown up, right? When, when you have people that you care about, you will, you will treasure them and you will treasure yourself and you will take care of you know, both how you act, how you speak, and, and the choices that you make. And so you'll be less likely to go off the rails. You know, but, it, but it'll get super technical. And that gives the impression that he's a super technical person and this is a legitimate debate and you're discussing the details of the critique, right? But the reality is... It's and Laponius asks the good question. Is this Adderall 40 or straight edge 40? This is non-Adderall 40, right? I had my last Adderall pill. It was just five milligrams at about uh, 12.30 p.m. yesterday. So I haven't taken my my Adderall yet. I'll, I'll probably take it about uh, 8.30 a.m. I have asked for a larger dose because I didn't notice any discernible effect. I think it made me more inclined to clean. I think it helped me helped me to calm down a little bit in my, in my mind. I think it uh, gave me a little bit more freedom to, to take care of the mundane of life. I think it's made me a little bit more effective and a little less uh, verbally impulsive. Uh, one, one habit that, that I, I'm developing right now is that uh, I'm writing down many comments that I want to make socially. Instead of just like blurting them out, I'm like writing them down and, and thinking about whether or not they'd be a good idea to say publicly. And that way, when I write them down, at least I get to share them on the show. Yeah, be careful with that stuff. Absolutely. So unlike modafinil, Adderall is highly addictive and it's not something that you can just quit overnight as well. And uh, so if you, if you abuse Adderall, there are some very severe consequences. It's not. It's about ivermectin because Brett Weinstein promoted ivermectin and Alexandra said. So yeah, I, I want to get uh, the... Currently, I'm taking two five milligram tabs a day. I want to try the twenty milligram time release tab. That's that's next on my agenda. 
a big fan. Yeah. Right? I know. So, yeah. so I, I know you know that, but what I mean is like, the problem is for someone to see that, like, so Daniel Lakins, he's a psychologist, which produces all this content about open science stuff and um, has like a lot of publications. And Elliot says, take a week off of Adderall and see how you feel. Well, I, I, I've taken 57 years of my life without Adderall. So now I, I, I'm trying it for uh, two weeks now. I think I've been on it for two weeks. So I, I think I'm going to give it a little bit of a run here before I just uh, arbitrarily quit it. All right, it seems to improve the quality of my life. What percentage of academic success can be attributed to Adderall? A significant amount. I would say more than 5%. A free MOOC, which is very good about statistical inference. And he got into an argument with Alexandros, right? And Alexandros was just talking kind of shit. And then... Yeah, but some people have the delusion that like Adderall can provide you with, you know, information that you don't already have in your brain, right? Adderall, for people with ADHD, it enables their mind to calm down so that they can then do, you know, study and then pay attention to details and then focus like a, a normal person. But if you're not willing to still knuckle down and do that hard work, you're not going to get those rewards. And Lakins was saying, you don't produce anything. You know, this, this is nothing. This is a waste of my time. And Alexandros was saying, oh, so you won't show me where the flaws are? And he's like, no, you, and you don't need, like, it doesn't matter. If you were actually correct, you don't need to engage with me to prove that you're correct, right? But, but Alexandros operates on the, the kind of influencer thing. But, but the thing is, people would be so much better off taking Lakin's MOOC, freely available, interestingly presented, Introduction to Statistics eight-week course, right, that you can do online for free. And it would give them a much better critical grasp about how to read statistics, how to look critically at claims, how to notice people presenting bullshit. But that would take eight weeks of effort. And Alexandros will give you, like, months and months of just indulgence and preening and the, the kind of fantasy that you're seeing through things with, with relatively little effort. So I think you just have that imbalance of, like, do you want to take the statistics mm. course online <laughs> that will help you understand yeah. statistics? Or do you want to read the Culture Warrior telling you that Okay, my friend Curious Gazelle tweets a quote from my show, Animals on the Fringe of the Herd, more likely to be cut off. Life in the middle of the herd works better for most people. Then she quotes uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, chapter 10. You scratch my back, I'll ride on yours, page 167. Many of the suggested benefits of group living have been concerned with avoiding being eaten by predators. Right? So you start with a simple model. Suppose a species of animal is hunted by a predator that always tends to attack the nearest prey individual. From the predator's point of view, that is a reasonable strategy since it tends to cut down on energy expenditure. I mean, particularly as a man, I know my default is to do that which requires the least energy. <laughs> that's, that's my default, unless it's something I, I'm passionate about, such as you know, live streaming or just sharing my opinions in general. Okay, from the prey's point of view, this has interesting consequence. means that each prey individual will constantly try to avoid being the nearest to a predator. If the prey can detect the predator at a distance, it will simply run away. But if the predator is apt to turn up suddenly without warning, say it looks concealed in long grass, then each prey individual can still take steps to minimize its chances of being the nearest to a predator. We can picture each prey individual as being surrounded by a domain of danger. And we're all surrounded by a domain of danger. It's just uh, varying degrees of danger. This is defined as that area of ground which any point is nearer to that individual than it is to any other individual. For instance, if the prey individual march spaced out in a regular geometric formation, the domain of danger around each one, unless he's on the edge, might be roughly hexagonal in shape. If a predator happens to be lurking in the hexagonal domain of danger, 
surrounding the individual A, then individual A is likely to be eaten. So individuals on the edge of the herd are especially vulnerable, since their domain of danger is not a relatively small hexagon, but includes a wide area on the open side. So a sensible individual will try to keep his domain of danger as small as possible. That's why sensible individuals, generally speaking, don't live stream. You want to keep your domain of danger as small as possible, don't live stream, because you'll inevitably blurt out things that you shouldn't. And you'll inevitably be affected by live streaming. You'll inevitably start thinking that your insights are more powerful than they are, that you're more talented than you really are. You'll start thinking you're more important than you really are. You'll start sharing things that you shouldn't share. All right. These are the nearly irresistible tides that flow upon you when you live stream. So yes, you want to avoid the domain of danger, avoid being on the edge of the herd. If you find yourself on the edge, take immediate steps toward the center. So Curious Gazelle has been reading The Selfish Genes. The Selfish Genes, she believes it's a misread book and Richard Dawkins is a misunderstood man. Okay, back to uh, Chris Cavanaugh here speaking with Matt Brown. The mainstream is lying about the bullshit. And right, like, how do you tell someone, your friend, in this scenario, what you should do if you're interested in these topics is go spend your time learning the basics mm. of statistical analysis? I don't think it's an easy sell. Like, you know, yeah. and, and even the, the critiques about institutions don't work because that course is free, freely available. And, mm. you know, it's, yeah. it's critical. It's a replication crisis kind of course, but that yeah. won't matter. So. I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, what you just described there, Chris, is the problem with the the online discourse in a nutshell, right? Like people want the shortcut to go straight to the blinding insight and seeing through the matrix and, and so on. And people I said the word, say the word. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, because it's so much easier, right? Just just go, go directly to, to the end, you know, don't do all of that boring shit. Um, and, uh, you know, Marinos himself, you know, would never take an eight week bloody statistics course, even though he spent months, months and months, maybe years of his life now, just focused on evaluating, theoretically evaluating clinical studies. Um, so yeah, it's hard. And the other problem too, is that like conspiracy theorists, like your internet, Chris, they, they love it when you debate the details and just discuss the technicalities because they will go on forever and ever about that. And we'll just keep manufacturing new objections to, to whatever. And Elliot asked, do YouTube's terms of service discriminate against those with threats? Well, they d- discriminate against all sorts of people, including those who optimize for, for truth. So if you have a hero system that uh, regards heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman as the only authentic form of marriage, right? You're going to likely bump up to some problems with uh, YouTube's terms of service. If you believe that uh, sex is something that's in the chromosomes and that people cannot change their sex, then you're going to bump up against uh, many social media companies' terms of service. So it's not just those with Tourette's, it's those with traditional views, right? Who are going to bump up into problems against YouTube's terms of service. So, for example, I don't believe that uh, racism is a real thing. I don't believe that it's a moral evil. I I believe that, yeah, people generally tend to prefer people who are like themselves and that race is one component that people instinctively or cognitively use in assessing other people and whether or not they feel comfortable around someone and whether or not they want to be close to someone. But I, I don't see that as just inherently morally wrong. Right. I just think that's how people are programmed. It can be done in a gross and you know vulgar and disgusting way, but we're, we're programmed to prefer people like ourselves. So I, I don't think uh, racism, sexism, ageism, Islamophobia, homophobia, I, I don't believe that these are real moral sins. But I live in a society where much of the population believes these are real moral sins, 
And so I have to adjust my language and my behavior to accommodate this significant portion of society. And this is also that portion of society that essentially controls terms of service for virtually all social media companies that controls the high grounds of discourse in culture and in politics and in economics and in you know, academic and intellectual life generally. So I have to take you know, other people's hero systems into account if I want to be effective as I navigate through the world. They've obviously explores the well-known characteristic conspiracies. So yeah. yeah, I don't know. People are lazy. It's the problem. I mean, we all are. I mean, I'm not saying them. I mean, we we all just like to get the. Get the I'd like, but but I think stuff like yeah, so I would say the answer that we might have is like stuff like Coffeezilla or you know like things which are showing the need to be skeptical and to recognize like bullshit via the same kind of medium that the person is consuming the current content that they like. Like that might work at least if you can introduce them to. But like yeah, but you have to be careful about the. Replace one ideology with another one. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, I'll just say again on this to this question, which is I know a few people from real life, some friends of my brothers that I also knew when we were younger and stuff that have also, they're, they're, they're actually fans of a lot of the gurus we've covered, Chris, in, in real life. And they, all of them have, they're all men. They've all, they're all perhaps not had a happy life in terms of building personal relationships and so on. And it seems like I, I it's really brought home to me how that the, I don't think they're like they see themselves as free thinkers, as curious, as curious people that are that are. Uh, but what they don't realize, I think, is that that being a fan of this content is actually satisfying their like socio emotional needs, right? That those needs for self esteem and needs for all, all kinds of things. And so it's really hard. Like it, you have to, you can't really debate something or or change someone's thinking on a purely sort of intellectual level, or a, you know, like supposedly dispassionate talking about facts about COVID or vaccines or climate change, or whatever. When the underlying motivations for the thing that's attracting them to it are uh, socio-emotional and psychological and yeah. you know it's kind of good luck in getting someone to I'm, I'm thinking of the people that i know in real life good luck in getting them to acknowledge <laughs> that that's that, the real reason that they're attracted uh, to it in the chat said you know it seems like people want an emotional need fulfilled and that is that yeah. is a lot of it. like it, so that's that's one of the problems is like people often frame it as like an intellectual to be it but it's it's not in many respects it's like an emotional attachment to the figures that they're you know they regard a lot of the people that are defenders of brett weinstein always say he's such a nice person like, like that's i you know they as if that would have any impact on his ability to promote anti-vaccine stuff, right? Like, it's like they imagine that to promote, to be a genuine anti-vax person, you'd have to be outwardly evil looking or something. You're like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like, everyone, everyone thinks they're a good person, or most people. So have you heard of uh, Paul Davis, right? She got into a lot of trouble for having uh, Nick Fuentes uh, on her live stream. And the way that she explained it was that uh, he was a really nice guy. And I, I I don't condemn her for having Nick Fuentes. I've had Nick Fuentes on my show. But, uh, yeah, saying that someone's like a really nice person is not a particularly strong argument, right? Most people are nice in some areas of life and not nice in other areas of life, right? There, there are times when I am quite nice. There are plenty of times that uh, I am not nice, right? No, Virtually nobody is just generically nice. And, and also uh, the people that are like even promoting vile ideologies can yeah. be interpersonally nice. Like it's just, it's yeah, just yeah. But, but it's, but, but fundamentally, Chris, it's not about really their view of the guru or the other person. I think it's primarily about how they view themselves, right? Like yeah, we're, yeah. we're talking about socio-emotional needs. We're talking about ourselves. And like we, we covered that um, paper by Abelson called Beliefs are Like Possessions, which is mm -hmm. basically, a, 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 the, the thesis is basically how people have beliefs and we kind of treat them as like a kind of social capital, right? Stuff that we have that, that makes us 
who we are, right? Um, and these sorts of beliefs are very different from very pragmatic beliefs. Like, where are my car keys, right? It doesn't matter yeah, to yeah. me whether, whether my car keys are there or there. I just, I'm motivated to have an accurate belief about where my car keys are because it'll be inconvenient if I don't, right? Now, some people would approach something like COVID pragmatically, like with your car keys, right? Other people approach these issues when it, like psychosocial, feeling a psychosocial need. And I, I really do believe, like, I, Chris, I wanted to mention this to you. I came across a thread on Twitter where some, some psychologist who I, I didn't know about was actually talking about communication, right? So they were talking about beliefs, they were talking about communication, and they were saying that there are basically two dimensions to, to communication, right? There is communication which is oriented towards communicating facts, right? Factual, like, inf factual sort of information, um, useful information. And then there's a lot of communication that is geared towards like social relationships, you know, enhancing social relationships, managing social relationships, and so on, right? So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we say and how we talk and stuff like that is just sometimes there is no content, right? It's more about saying, hello, I'm, I'm happy to meet yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm a nice guy, whatever. Um, and so that's all fine and normal. And I think the same thing kind of applies to beliefs, right? You can think of it as a two-dimensional spectrum there, right? There are some types of beliefs that are pragmatic and just boring. They, they, they serve no psychological needs whatsoever, right? And, and there, are, there, are, there are ones across the other dimension, like, you know, my football team's a great football team. My wife is the most beautiful person in the world. You know, my kids are really smart and talented. Um, so many, you know, I'm, you know, any beliefs about yourself, like these, these, are, these are beliefs which are about your identity um, and about making there's, you feel okay about the world there's a there's a i think it's a buddhist thing i can't remember it was probably from anthony de Mello where i originally heard it and, and but I, I i have my quibbles about a lot of the you know that kind of presentation of things but um that aside i think this insight was quite astute which was saying you know whenever people have invested in an image of someone as a particular thing uh that if said person then per, behaves in a way that is that contradicts that image that it can emotionally upset people right and in some respect it can be that people have invested a lot in a particular image of someone and they don't like to see that image contradicted right like i thought you were like this but now you're like you know you're like that and the argument that the i think it was the mellow or whatever was making was like a lot of that is based on the person's own feeling of you know they don't want their thing that was giving them comfort to be shattered to be wrong and and so the actual other person is like largely not irrelevant but like kind of their main role for the individual is to serve a particular function, right? And if they behave in ways that contradict that, then it can feel like a betrayal, right? Even though objectively the person is just doing what they're doing out in the world. So they actually are like that because that's what they were doing. But uh, I, I think that can be useful sometimes as like reframing things around your, not whether the person is doing bad or good because they are, but your emotional reaction to what people are doing, you know, often relating to the kind of images that you've constructed or what you imagine that things should be. And yeah, so... Uh, we, we've strayed far afield from the original question, but that was the, um, that, that. Yeah. How, how do you, you know, how do you find truth? And uh, perhaps the, the most important thing is to develop a life of self-respect so that you reduce your psychological need to believe in things that are bogus. Just about Seth. So I'm bad at Max. Oh, oh, I'm looking at the questions, not the, not the comments. Oh, I don't, I, I, I didn't know. Sorry, no, I'm sorry. In, oh, in sorry, sorry. Just... Barbosa. <laughs> J-Boy. J-Man. J-Man. Yeah, J-Barbosa. Mr. Barbosa. Uh, Mr. Barbosa. So he mentioned that, you know, that Brett has changed over time of audience capture. And I think that's true. And Matt pointed out. Talking about uh, Brett Weinstein. Like Portuguese. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yes, thank you. Um, but uh, like Brett has definitely changed. If you look back, like Matt said, him and Heller were very hesitant to talk openly about anti-vaccine stuff. They wouldn't mention that they had conversations with RFK Jr. I knew that they did because uh, there were various, David Fuller behind the scenes had, these, had them on email exchanges with like all of the anti-vaccine people, right? So, and they never mentioned that publicly. No, they'd be perfectly happy, right? To have RFK Jr. on the show or that kind of thing. But that also speaks to how much more mainstream credibility on the right that anti-vaccine stuff has gotten recently. So I wouldn't argue that they've, uh, like they haven't moved at all. But I would say, 
Brett's conspiratorial nature, his ideological like certainty, and it, and his narcissism, frankly, is really really evident if you go back and look at his old content. If you look at his pre-famous content, some of his students have talked to us about the experiences on this course, and it sounds very familiar. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds pretty flaky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I did invite Alan up, by the way, Matt, but the thing doesn't seem to be working. The software, this is the, you know, this is the, the curse of Crowdcast. But look, it seems to have ironed out its kinks with the presentation. Oh, and by the way, I, I wanted to mention this just randomly. Lex was announcing on the subreddit that he's, I guess, some game is paying him money to play Starfield or something like this. Some, I think it's like a roguelike. Um... So I, I don't play video games because I know that I would absolutely love them. And so... For, for things like video games, it's easier for me to abstain than to be moderate. But I, I don't have this knee-jerk attitude towards them that they're inherently bad. I, I think there's no reason that playing a video game is you know, a less worthy activity than, say, playing chess or playing basketball or live streaming. And for many people, like playing a video game would be an enhancement on how they're spending their time. Right? Some people should be playing video games instead of live streaming. Right. Some people should be playing video games instead of whacking off to pornography. Some people should be playing video games rather than being religious extremists. Space RPG. So he's going to play that, right? And he said he's going to do a live AMA while he does it on, on Reddit or whatever. Who cares, right? Like, um, there won't be much insight gained through that. But I was thinking, Lex should just play Baldur's Gate or something like that because he can get all of his sexual tension out. He can, you know, romance all the characters. He can be the hero <laughs> saving the realm and, you know, the mighty elfin warrior or whatever he wants to be. Like, why isn't he just really into D&D? That would be such a better outlet, outlet for him. And he could compose his cringy-ass poetry for the, you know, the Gif Yankee warrior in the game or whatever. Like, I, I think Baldur's Gate could, could be the outlet that um, Lex needs. That's mm. just Maybe that's the thing for the person you asked earlier. What should you recommend? Just recommend all your friends go play fantasy games. Like it'll give them all those narratives, but they they don't have to destroy yeah. the world. Don't think from... don't think about current events and geopolitics and politics so much. Just Andrew get, get a hobby. Get a hobby. Yeah. Get some friends. We're doing the reverse. Yeah. You know, they're saying get off the computer game, stop masturbating. I'm saying get yourself more. a virtual <laughs> like half drive, half orc girlfriend in the game. Become the hero of the realm. There you go. I don't bother the rest of the people in your manosphere. Shit. Like, there. That's, that's, I don't think it's a great solution. But for Lex, I was just like, that, because that Baldur's Gate game, as I said, Matt, is like incessantly horny. It's, it's built for people like Lex. You are the, <laughs> the, the greatest warrior and you're the person that everybody wants to have sex with. So he should read, what's that novel series? The Dresden Files as well, right? The like martial arts oh, yeah. private detective wizard. Like that. Yeah. Just stop reading about World War II. Read about that guy. And there you go. It'll satisfy him. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be good, Seth, if the IDW did a D&D campaign. Just imagine trying to be the games Dun master, Dungeon master, Dungeon master, Dungeon master with like Eric and, and Sam. <laughs> <laughs> That's content I would pay for. Those I would I would watch that. <laughs> or the sense makers doing the campaign. <laughs> I throw a prismatic cube and, a, you know, a, uh, like they should, if they spent their time doing that, just in-depth D&D campaigns, that would be such a better outlet, outlet for their skills. Like, yeah. Uh, that's so, it. All right. That's it. We've solved it, Matt. We just need to get them all into role-playing game. Okay. I like that analogy. A little bit more from Decoding the Gurus, then I'm going to move on. It doesn't on. matter whether somebody's gifting or actually does what they say, but are there any gurus who genuinely think they're grifters? I can't help but think Ben Shapiro is a grifter. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. So both parts of that, I think it's true, right? I think, like I stand by this this thing, which is that, you know, like a, a lot a lot of times people wonder about someone like Trump, right? Like, does, does he really believe this bullshit he's saying or whatever? Or is he like consciously 
making stuff up to 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 as like some sort of five dimensional chess or whatever. And it's it's the same with all of our gurus too. And like take Jordan Peterson for instance. But it's like a very adaptive form of insanity in in the sense that you know you can't if you have a sufficiently narcissistic self interested point of view, then whatever works for you is kind of true for you. And it's, I mean and th and that is how human brains work, right? I mean Chris, I was going to talk about this, but I think this is an interesting theoretical thing. Like like you know as well as I do, right? That like human brains in terms of how we process information generally. Right, uh, we're not optimized for an accurate, truthful view of the world. Right, we're optimized for a view of the world that maximizes the benefit to us as organisms in terms of yeah. interacting with it. Right, so this is, I think, so it makes perfect sense that when you encounter narcissists and people that are, you know, have these ridiculous beliefs, like thinking that you know you're the most beautiful, most charming, most important person in the world, and if you act like that and if it works for you, then that is almost by definition not a maladaptive belief, even though it, you make your own reality in a way. So anyway, but that's that, that's a side thing. Um, but there is a spectrum. I agree with you, Chris, about that. Um, who are the grifters? Who are the people that are more on the grifting end of the spectrum in the sense that they are, they're sort of consciously just doing whatever it is that will get them more clicks and- Well, so one, one thing I would say is that the problem there is sometimes that the people that do that, I think it serves their interests if they end up like buying their own bullshit to some extent. So like, I think some of them, you know, even that it, it might start off as a conscious pose, but it ends up like, you know, indistinguishable from what they actually believe. Like, so, yeah, I think all the, the big time talk radio hosts, TV news opinion hosts, or the, the big time gurus do believe what they say. Like Anthony, but like say Jordan Peterson springs to mind, right? Like he yeah. like I don't think when he tweets he's he's like consciously calculating this this will be no. just and this will no, he's 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 mental. Um yeah. but, but it's an it's a weirdly adaptive form of being mental because it, it is it does sort of help him in some ways. Um so but, but there are people on the more I think that are more just bunging it on, you know what I mean, that are pretending. Um yeah, JPCOs, I don't think he's pretending, I think he's an idiot, but like I think he's conscious about the cultivating an audience and the same would apply to uh someone like um, who was it that we uh, covered recently that I I need to I need to pull out the gorometer. I just need to have my memory. Like Dave, Dave Rubin obviously falls into that. Scott Adams I also think does that. Like Scott Adams consciously selects the way that he you know responds to things and and it's, so like it's I mean like Gant said he's absolutely playing oh, yeah. different things, saying what people he thinks people want to hear and whatever. But he is also a hugely needy man who reacts to controversies or whatever. So like does he actually not believe what he's saying or you know I don't think. I don't think that's the case. Like, I don't think any, there's many of the people that we cover that secretly have these really good epistemics and they okay. know that, that stuff is like on the what, up and up. What about content in kissing, Chris? So content no. in like, oh, like yeah. actually, so no, you're right. I think he actually falls in. He fits the original thing that I said, which is a, that it's both, right? It's one of both. Yeah. Content in kissing genuinely believes he's he's an important person that is that is con contributing you know, what we, what people really need to hear right now, right? Yes. Like he believes he is a good influence on the world. At the same time, he's transparently led, like Chris, you, you were explaining to me just how much he talks about like his metrics and how the proudest moment of his life is how he, on that um, on that um, Oxford Union speech where, you know, he gave that really quite terrible, stupid speech. But because it got a huge amount of attention, a whole bunch of clicks, that's like the biggest thing for him. And I think that's a good example, right? Whereas like he does want to, like a lot of his influences and stuff, he wants to be influential. He wants to be popular. He wants to make a name for himself. He sees all of those rewards in terms of, that that flow from that as being the sort of just desserts from him being the awesome, vastly insightful, wonderful person that he is. So we've we talked about this a few times, but it's it's this narcissism yeah. <laughs> is the amazing glue that binds those two beliefs together. Um, that that self-interested grifting kind of thing where you are focused on metrics and you know this you know um, being trending on Twitter and whatever, but at the same time you have this 
total confidence right that you are a good person who is who's contributing in a positive way and and you need to be like eric weinstein wearing a suit so you can be flown to the white house at any you know opportunity to to, to advise the, the great and the good on how to run the world yeah and i i think constantine is illustrative in the fact that like that's true eric weinstein does talk about having you know a suit on hand so that he can be flown to the white house to to advise does constantine know that he's exaggerating things are playing up uh, and, and approaching things from a particular angle. Yes, he does. Even his origin story relies on him like hyping up this very, very minor event about like receiving um, like a Google Doc from some student who, who like, you know, when he was going to do a, a free comedy set, which he was invited to by like just some silly student union organization, not even a student union, you know, some organization, just some student sent Constantine a Google Doc. Now, does he know that that is making that into this big huge issue is inaccurate i think to some extent he does because like he must also recognize that the university didn't send him anything that the student union apologized to him and all that so he must know that he's like kind of hyperbolically representing him, but I think for him yep. mm. yeah so he is it kind, of, doing it, that. kind of, it kind of doesn't matter right because it's, yeah it's part of the i mean who's that very handsome charming young man that we spoke to once what's his name again chris chris williamson chris williamson now you know, Chris, Chris Williamson is, I think, almost the perfect example of this. Like, he's a player. He, he's, he want, you know, he's set himself the, the, the goal of being, of, of being successful at what he does. And he, he focuses his mind on that. And he doesn't really ask the question. Like, I don't think it's really relevant to him whether or not this is a good thing, a true thing, or whatever. He sees the numbers go up, and he sees that it is good. Like, it is, it is that simple. So, Chris, I think this is a bit mean. To, maybe it's too mean to this, what's his name. But, um, like, you know, in Breaking Bad, yeah. you know the... You, oh, you, you know the no. No, worse than that. So do, do you remember the character? I don't know the guy's name, but you know, he was the absolute psychopath who shot the little kid. You know, you know how that at the end, towards the end, they imprisoned yeah, Jesse yeah. and Jesse was in a dungeon and there was the absolute oh, psychopath. Oh, wait, yeah, yeah, Jesse, please. Yeah. I, I know the guy that you mean. What's his name? I forget yeah. the character. But, but the young was, ginger guy. Yeah, ginger guy, right. Chunky ginger guy. Now, now the, the, the sort of chilling thing about that character is that he could just so easily do these horrible things and didn't. Didn't, yeah, didn't, but, but but he explained well. But he was going to tell someone. Or oh, sorry, we have, to, we, have, we have to keep him yeah. in the dungeon. Whatever. And he was actually very nice to Jesse on an interpersonal level. Yeah, right. He's not. But he just had no. There was no, nothing in him. <laughs> the, the one thing I will say, like, so I think that comparison is useful. But like in the case of Chris, I That's will. Be, I, I'm yeah, not no. calling Chris a serial killer. Um, the, but, yeah, I, he wouldn't shoot a child. But I, he, I, he, I, probably, he probably wouldn't shoot a child. We don't. You know, probably. No, but I I think the reason I have to give him some credit for that is if that were uh, with him the case he would have covered covid and he would have like constantine and trigonometry got you know brett weinstein on they had anti-vaccine doctors on they're leaning into it now yeah yeah and, and chris didn't uh, and I, I think you know there are so that that to me gets some credit some credit the same yeah. way huberman gets discredit for choosing not to ever mention vaccines because like that that's one of the things that like struck me is the people that argue you know that like somebody like huberman it is you know that what he says what he's about, which is about communicating science and just giving the real story and whatnot. How do you merge that with somebody who cares about health and science has never mm -hmm. once done an episode during a pandemic about vaccines and the science yeah. supporting them? That doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. And saying, well, it's right. a controversial issue. He talks about grinding. He talks about ice baths, but he doesn't feel that he can recommend vaccines. The evidence isn't strong enough there, or it's not worth him adding his two cents because, you know, that's, that's not really his brand. No bullshit. If you're the number one science promoter in the podcast sphere, and you were all about the science, you would promote vaccines to your vaccine-hesitant yeah. audience yeah. by saying, the evidence yeah. supports it. I'm sorry, guys, you know, yeah. you, yeah. this is... I know, for, for me, that and the purveying of supplements, like more than anything he said or didn't say, or Eric has been, those two brute facts are, <laughs> <laughs> are probably the biggest deal breakers for me.
Yeah, I mean, I've said it before, Chris, they're actually um, terrible and destructive as they both were. Um, but both COVID and the Ukraine. Uh, oh, yeah, it's very useful. Have been extremely instructive for separating. Okay, so Constantine Kesson interviewed Paul Davis. So she's the bills kind of bills herself as described as the the female Andrew Tate. So let me let me play uh, decoding the gurus analyzing Constantine Kesson hosting Paul Davis. Okay, this stuff. The the only issue I have with the way we're having this conversation, and I'm really enjoying it, is you're kind of getting me to defend other people a lot. That you just attack me, and I can speak for myself. Uh, because uh, Brett, uh, I, I can tell you what I think about Brett. I disagree uh, with Brett's approach to COVID. I also am not qualified to agree or disagree with Brett's approach. All right. So this is from a, about a year year and a half ago, two years ago, on uh, decoding the gurus. Constantine Kissin came on, and they're giving him a hard time about having Brett Weinstein on his show and not challenging Brett on his anti-vax views. But I instinctively do not agree with the way that he's approached it. At the same time, Brett is a very good friend of mine. He is a man I respect tremendously. Uh, Kim and Heather are two of the, of, the, of the finest human beings that I've ever encountered in my life, and I'm fortunate to have encountered quite a few very high-quality human beings. So I believe in being able to disagree with people about important issues and, and, and still appreciate the good qualities. But Oh, sorry, I'm skipping all around. The reason I'm skipping all around is I haven't had my Adderall yet, but uh, Nathan Kofnis went on a podcast and was absolutely hilarious are you racist enough for jewish funding probably not yeah. probably not let's let's call let's call soros yeah. you um can you call soros and ask him for money well, well they're the good they're the good jews and the bad jews he's one of the bad ones <laughs> <laughs> not sorry. oh sorry i thought you all were good no, okay no, no, no. <laughs> well you you know there was a there was a jew um who got stranded on an island and he was there for many years and uh, when they finally came to rescue him, they discovered that he'd built two synagogues. I said, well, why did you build two synagogues? I said, well, in this one, I would pray. And in that one, I would never go there. Okay, a uh, little Andrew Kofnis here. Not Andrew, Nathan Kofnis on uh, some Swedish podcast. At, uh, something called Ethical Culture, which was founded... Okay, he's talking about his upbringing here. Let me get... Uh, Nathan Kofnas, thank you for joining the Manifest podcast. We, we can start with, like, what would, what would be, like, the first, the first intellectual topic that you found relevant? So I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the world headquarters of political correctness, and I went to uh, uh, elementary, middle, and high school at uh, something called Ethical Culture, which was founded by Felix Adler, who was a reform rabbi who also played a, was a prominent figure in the development of political correctness. And a big part of the curriculum was about racism and what white people had done and all that. So I didn't really question that for the first several years of my life. Children don't really question things. Then maybe when I was 15, I started noticing phenomena that were difficult to explain according to the racism theory. You know, people that I knew that grew up, as far as I could tell, under very similar conditions, tended to have slightly different averages and patterns in their behavior and uh, that sort of thing. But I assumed I must be confused. And certainly the idea that there are differences between these groups is just impossible. 
because there hasn't been enough time for evolution to create differences, which is just some idea that I repeated with, without having any understanding of what I was saying. When I was 17 years old, I started taking uh, classes uh, as a visiting high school student at Columbia University, which is where I eventually went to uh, get my BA. And I took an anthropology class on uh, the evolution of human behavior. And the professor mentioned that Australian Aborigines have a Brodmann's Area 17 that's something like uh, 25 to 50% larger than in uh, the European population. And he said that the, this is the area of the brain that's responsible for, some, for vision. So he said, does that mean there's less room for something else? I don't know. That's what he said. But as soon as he said that, it occurred to me that, okay, I've been lied to. It was a very shocking experience. You know, part of my identity was you know, these beliefs that had, that had been imprinted on me about racism is responsible for all disparities. Yeah, it was, it, was all, it was all a lie. And I became absolutely obsessed with intelligence research and race differences. And I just, I couldn't stop talking about it. Just to every person I met, I would explain, I would explain these things. And even when I had college interviews, I told the college interview, interviewers about race differences. So I was interviewed by Harvard, for example, and I started <laughs> telling them about race differences. Sorry, sorry, I, sorry, yeah. sorry for being rude. <laughs> I, I did not go to Harvard. Uh, but, but anyway, Columbia didn't have interviews, so that wasn't that wasn't a problem. There. Amazing. So I've learned to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I can order a cup of coffee without telling them <laughs> about race differences. But I, at the time, I guess I assumed I'd just keep going with this and I'd uh, major in anthropology or um, psychology. But I didn't really fit into that that community, and I became interested in more methodological issues. My interest in science really was about in areas where there are questions of methodology and uh, and also connected with uh, ethical and social issues. So uh, philosophy is a better field to uh, to approach those questions than mm. uh, anthropology. Nathan, could you? Yeah. So philosophy has the highest verbal IQ, I, I think, of any of the academic disciplines, meaning GRE scores for people getting into the discipline. The, 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 the controversy is sort of apparent in itself or something like that. A battery of tests, tests of different specific abilities. So their ability to do analogies, their ability to remember numbers. Okay, he's just explaining what uh, IQ tests are. Let me fast forward. Eradicating less suitable ethnic traits then. But, but what you do have is individuals that on a liberal basis can choose to abort or keep children based on their cognitive potential, let's say. Um, and then you also, in a way, have by proxy a selection of intelligence with who to mate with. You referred, referred earlier to not getting into Harvard. <laughs> but one of the main benefits of Harvard is that you find your mating partners. That is, even though you could argue that people are not smarter for going to Harvard, that would still be the credentialism from having a degree. You won't be able to find a mate, a mate who can't stop talking about race differences. It's <laughs> like I was able to find a Columbia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 That's, this is a good ad for Colombia, by the way, which I never sort of figured be the be, be the sort of breeding ground for this sort of uh, well, <laughs> mating. I, it, it worked. It worked out for me. They've gone downhill. Uh, well, okay, so, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get back to my point, but I'm curious about your mate. <laughs> we met in a class, a different class, taught by the same professor who I mentioned earlier. It was well, I don't want to call it phrenology class, but everybody had a skull. The table was full of skulls. 
and we had to to learn the 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 names of all the bones in the skull and there are lots of little cracks and crevices and everyone has a name and we we're supposed to learn and so we had to choose a partner to to do the phrenology with and so she was my my partner <laughs> definitely not phrenology class then yeah i no. mean the, the bone science class that's right <laughs> But but she lives in Korea, otherwise. Yeah, no, she, I thought... came, she came a couple weeks ago. Okay. She she's Korean. The, the conspiracy deepens. Obviously, she's of East Asian descent. Uh, yeah. Well, but I, I I actually well we learned very little phrenology in that class, uh, but I did acquire yes a wife. The mate. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now I get even more curious. So like, are these issues? as contentious in in asia uh, now I'm, I'm realizing i'm using your sample of one with regards to your partner on this topic but surely you must have been able to pick up or or try to differentiate between the different approaches to these topics well in general koreans are very racist uh, east asians are very racist the average person there takes it for granted that there are differences between people and they don't have the the same moral hang-ups that that westerners do why is that well then they don't have the same history uh, with racial conflict as Westerners, because they're homogeneous, they're more homogeneous. They don't have to confront, you know, the question of of differences to the same same extent as um, as Westerners. Although they have some uh, they have some racial diversity, but usually it's the extremes are not what uh, what you see in uh, in the West, where you have just enormous differences in outcome between blacks and whites. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Singapore they have. I, I don't know anything about Singapore. I never lived there. I lived in in Korea for for a long time also Hong Kong and I spent time in Japan but I know Korea the best but they do have some some racial minorities which the average person doesn't like very much so for example when my wife and I were moving to a new apartment we were interviewing different moving companies and one of them boasted about all the races they won't hire so they only hire Koreans that means they don't hire Chinese that means they don't hire Uzbekistan people uh, they don't hire Indians. Uh, he was very proud of of, uh, of all. He could have just said we only hire Koreans, but he wanted to emphasize that that they they definitely wouldn't hire any other race. So obviously you wouldn't that wouldn't be socially acceptable in uh, America or Sweden, but in Korea that's relatively normal. However, people are sort of aware that that publicly they're supposed to be egalitarian. Mm. Whether they really feel this way or not, I don't know. But at least educated people will say adopt adopt the, the line from America. Because uh, at least the, a lot of academics also got their degrees in America or the UK, so they took that stuff back to Korea. Even if they don't fully understand it, they they try to to repeat this. Everyone is the same thing. In fact, I had a talk canceled at the Korea. Uh, well, I won't say the university publicly, but one of the top uh, universities in Korea, because just like forty eight hours before I was scheduled to get to give the talk, they say like no the. There are objections to to my presence on campus, and they're canceling it. So I, I'm and I'm quite sure that the person who who was behind that is a Korean who got his PhD in the UK. Mm. Thinks I'm a racist, too racist for Korea. Is that is that on the top of your CV then? Probably. Look, I canceled. So yeah, too so racist. Nathan Kofner is too racist for Korea. I don't need I don't need to put it on my CV because people people wrote it all over the internet. Right. So that's where they 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 found it. Okay. Okay. A lot of good stuff in this podcast. Is another highlight. They might, they have to be like a noble or a trust fund kid, or 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 maybe royal. But otherwise, it's sort of unthinkable. And as Johan said, like like having an abortion because of you know um, detected cognitive disabilities is so, sort of also seen as a seen as 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 you know not even uh, worth a thought. You know, it's an automatic. And if you sort of think about it, you're sort of a Christian fundamentalist or or, or something else. 
So I'm wondering how to even like uh, disseminate and talk about this to to polite society and have some sort of reach because now it feels like it's mainly like people who are IQ 130 or above or sort of want to be talking about this. So, so wokeism is the logical consequence of taking the egalitarian premise seriously. Mm. So you think, I mean, what world are you living in if you think that the Congolese and Koreans are literally the same? Like, but if you believe that, if you believe that, then the most ur moral, urgent moral task is to correct for these disparities. Mm. So you're saying the Congo could be like Korea. So if if we would just stop being racist to the Congo, then in 30, 40 years, they would have the Congo Samsung and they would be sending us computer chips. Well, then uh, we've got to stop the racism, to take out the racists. And well, we can't really find the racists because the, the racists are in the hills of Arkansas. You know, those are the only like open racists. And it's hard to explain why, how they're responsible for, for you know, all these bad things. So you have to look, you know, for very subtle forms of racism, and uh, uh, maybe it's microaggressions or a statue of a white man who had a politically incorrect view. Maybe that is what causes the, these terrible outcomes. Now, the, the premise of wokeism has been accepted. It's been by three or four generations of liberals. It's just now we're taking it seriously. Mm. And this is what our grandparents thought, probably, at least our, certainly our parents, probably our grandparents thought that everyone is the same and eventually everything is going to equal out. And the differences just aren't going away. So if you really believe that they're environmental, then you will get wokeism. Mm. So all, all attempts to push back against wokeism are meaningless if we don't talk about this, about this issue. This is why I wanted us to get back to discussing... A little more in the podcast or the highlight would go for well race is uh, race intelligence is real on the other uh, end of the spectrum and in the middle you have the normie mid approach that racism is real as opposed to race is real so there's an idea that the the race stuff black lives matter movement and so on was a response to occupy wall street hmm. so the occupy wall street movement was getting off the ground according to this theory and the business interests felt threatened by that so they decided to shift focus to race and then they would be on you know the right side of the race issue and then interesting maybe that's why so many corporations were so eager to fund uh, black lives matter i mean it sure seemed like uh, dozens of fortune 500 companies were donating money to what is essentially a terrorist organization right back to constantine kisson his appearance a couple of years ago on Decoding the Gurus. Yeah, if, if you if you want to have a go at me personally, I'd, I'd probably find that a lot more interesting and um, easier to, to have that conversation. That brings back memories. Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yes. What's, what's this got to do with polo? What's the deal? Well, with polo? we'll we'll get there. We'll get there, Matt. You know, we got to set the scene. We we okay. got to take people on a journey. And this, you you may have been sitting in silence listening to that before when you were in that interview, uh, lurking in the background. Um, but <laughs> so there, you know, you heard Constantine say, you know, don't hold me responsible for the views of others. I can be friends with people I disagree with. That's a perfectly reasonable stance. He thinks Brett and Heller are some of the finest people he's ever met, Matt. That's mm. that says mm. a lot. That says a lot about. The, both the people that Constantine has met <laughs> and the, uh, the his judgment. His judgment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It just reminded me of that framing, which is you are a terrible person, as we all know, Chris, who likes to practice guilt by association, oh, slam yes. people behind their backs, and you're unable to tolerate people with different 
views. Yeah, so you, know, you, you could take a leaf out of Constantine's book, I think. Right. So, so here's me attempting to clarify what the issue is there. You know that, that actually I don't want Constantine to not be friends with Brett Weinstein, but it's it's something else that I was trying to raise. For example, with Brett, you might disagree with his views about COVID, mm. and you're not responsible for his particular views, and that you find him to be a very you know nice person, principled person, and and his wife Heller as well. And that that raises to me something which I hear a lot of in again I'm going to use the, the term like the heterodox space or whatever, but. There seems to be an over-reliance on this heuristic. If somebody is interpersonally nice to you, that, that this is somehow indicative that they can't actually be promoting misinformation or actually be... Somebody... But hold on, hold on, hold, hold on, hold on a second. The very first thing I said is that I don't agree with Brett about COVID. Okay, so let me let me finish what I the point I want to make there because okay. it's, it's I'm not saying that that, that is okay, the sorry, case. Sorry, sorry. I, I mean more in line with like in most occasions I don't find it hard to imagine that people are able to have positive interactions with someone. Hmm, okay. Yeah. So there, yeah, the, you know, a bugbear of mine, Matt, the emphasizing the the personal relationship, right, over the what the person's ideology is actually about. And I I, I raised the example after this of Gorka, which is someone who constant Sebastian Gorka, the member of Trump. Yeah. So one challenge with live streaming is: do you put a priority on your relationships with other live streamers, or do you put a priority on telling the truth? Right. You optimize for truth. Or do you optimize for networking? I strive to optimize for truth. As a result, you know, I've fallen out with many fellow live streamers. Scamnet, which is someone Constantine had had kind of highlighted in his appearance with Rogan as being yeah. a good dinner, good dinner company. Yeah, I mean, I remember very similar statements being said, but this is almost a mantra amongst this this heterodox field, like you said, like Joe Rogan, for instance. Great, we'll say nothing bad about Alex Jones, yeah? Great guy, stand-up guy, says a lot of important things. You know, he's right about a lot of stuff. You know, not on board with this specific thing or that specific thing. But it's always vague about what what, what great positive things they're doing. That, that bit isn't mentioned so much. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I, I'm indulging myself, Matt, here. There's a clip yeah. for a, from a wise little man, but, but here's, here's that wise Irish man talking about Sebastian Gorka. You talked about meeting Sebastian Gorka and mm. him being a fun guy to hang out with to go to a shooting rage to eat steak or whatever the case might be. And... I, I find that to be like when it's presented as a novel insight or something that we need to bear in mind, it strikes me as potentially rather than insightful and interesting to be obfuscating of the reason that that person's criticized. Because usually the reason is not that, you know, they are a, a fun person to have dinner with. It's because of the particular ideology or information that they're promoting that they get the criticism. And I see constant kind of referring to personal relationships and the importance of them as if that is something that we we aren't considering enough mm -hmm. okay why is man that, that chris <laughs> yeah it's, it's great great to hear from him again don't i don't hear enough from that guy but okay so that's that's you and him having having it out it was a very pleasant conversation you guys got along well during it but afterwards somehow it, it, things things definitely soured <laughs> yeah that's that's right and you know they, i i tried to make the the point about if you're being an interviewer that it's it's important to be able to address points of potential criticism, even with people that you agree with, and, and you can hear Constantine resist. In some ways, that's often more important than being able to attack the people on the other side of the political aisle. And, mm -hmm. and that's part of why I am raising these examples, like people traveling in Hungary to Orban or the, you know, the anti-vaccine stances. Because what I see, for example, is that when people in the heterodox view get together, they're often fine to talk about their collective enemies, the, the progressives and the woke and what they're doing wrong, and they avoid those topics which might be... What have I avoided? Uh, this, is, this is a problem when you talk about Hungary, well, okay. you talk about, what, what am I avoiding? You, so, for example, Constantine, would you, if you had Peter Bogosian on, are you likely to hold his feet to the fire about why he's in Hungary doing tours for Orban's government? When you spoke with Douglas Murray, have you ever raised the issue of his defenses of right-wing populist leaders across the world? 
Because I, don't I, think, in the... I don't think his support for right-wing populist leaders around the world needs defending. Uh, I don't know anything about Peter Bogosian's stores. I, like I said, I don't know anything about Hungarian politics. If I did, I wouldn't hesitate to ask him about it at all. No. But in, isn't there something where you can basically take that stance? Because, you know, you can prepare for interviews, right? And you can check what stances people have taken on things. Uh, yes, I, I... Yes, I think I'll be getting to get a sense of why no, you're what, what, <laughs> I just thought it was good. You know, it's been a while. We need to go back to our old content sometimes. And, you know, I think it's important to remember what what we've said, what other people have said. And, you know, I, so I, I think we can all agree that it is important, you know, to check out if you're going to interview someone, what, what topics might come up, what views that people might have argued for. So, you know, just so that you have an informed perspective when you're talking to them. And, you know, there, Constantine did have some pushback about that. That this is in the context of addressing, like maybe if you would address James Lindsay and his, you know, his, his extreme conspiracy theories. The problem is a bunch of people have already done that with him. He has his bullshit excuse, which is Twitter doesn't matter. Uh, that you know, what, what do you want him to do with that? Get him on for an hour and, and, and talk about that. There's no benefit to that. I said what I said uh, about James, both publicly and privately. I think I chose my words uh, very <laughs> carefully and uh, described what I think he's become. So uh, my problem with this conversation, I'm really keen for us to, to have the robust discussion. Is you keep presenting other people as being somehow. Okay contaminating I, of me when I'm, I'm not connected. I'm not doing those things. It's not, it's not about contamination. It's about willingness to challenge and, and more if people but are tell going me, to... Tell me, where am I not challenging people that I should be? You can't, can you, Chris? You can't. <laughs> well, well, the last, the last example of that, that we'll get out of our, our uh, content from, from this, but I think there's a good note to end on. I did have an example that I could offer to Constantine. And uh, again, I think, you know, just consider this place setting. We've set a lovely table up where, you know, with a lot of nice ripe fruit and desserts, main courses, they're all there for us to look at. Here's, here's a, a nice juicy chicken for you to tuck into. You interviewed Brett and Heller about their book, The Hunter Gallery's Guide to the 21st Century. Yes. This was at the height of their promotion of anti-vaccine rhetoric. Sure. You didn't raise it at all. And other people have noted that when they were arranging interviews with them, their publicists asked them not to address that controversy. You got a lot of criticism from your audience that I saw at the time for not raising that issue. Michael Shermer did the same thing. So that's a case where it looked a lot like you were avoiding a controversial issue to talk uh, with someone well, about that position. That, that specific you issue, that's, that's not accurate because what happened is we had Brett on it like a couple of months prior. And so to talk about the COVID stuff again would have been completely pointless. I think that publicists did say they wanted to talk about the book. I was... Okay, I'm going to disagree with uh, Decoding the Gurus here in that I, I don't believe that the purpose of every interview you do on a podcast should be journalistic, right? I don't think journalism is the prism through which, you know, all podcasts and online discussions should be judged, right? It's fine to have an entertaining discussion, discussion that, say, optimizes for humor or optimizes for creating a certain mood, or just deals with uh, the one topic that uh, both parties want to talk about. So Decoding the Gurus is, is calling out Constantine for not you know, optimizing for journalism. And I remember in the first couple of years that I was written about as a blogger, say 1999, 2000, the prism through which most of the articles were written was, was my blog good journalism? But my blog did not primarily optimize for journalism. There was a journalistic component to my blog. There was a reporting component to my blog. There was a talk radio component to my blog. There was a fiction element on my blog. There was an entertainment element to my blog. There was a humor element to my blog. All right. Talk radio should not be judged on whether or not it is good journalism. A podcast should not be judged on whether or not it is good journalism. And a conversation with a guest on you know, any internet forum Right, the prism, the criteria for, for judging whether or not the interview has worth is not, is it good journalism? Did you ask the tough questions? Right? 
if you're optimizing for journalism, then sure. But uh, the purpose of every online discussion, the highest purpose is not journalism. Much more interested in the book than talking about COVID. That's why we didn't talk about COVID. So, but I, I don't see that as shying away from challenging people on difficult things. It's just we wanted to have a conversation about a different issue at the time. He just didn't want to talk about it. More interested in other things, or he just doesn't know about it. He doesn't know. He didn't have time. So, you know, these are, I think it's important to consider that. You know, these are, I raised some points. There were some rebuttals to them. Now, let's turn to the interview that Constantine did with Pearl Davis. And the issue here, unfortunately, for Constantine and Francis was that shortly before they recorded the interview, Pearl hosted Nick Fuentes, the far-right, Holocaust-denying, misogynist dickhead. Mm, and yeah. he said a whole bunch of things. And so they felt obligated that they need to address it, right? Because they're going to host her immediately after a controversy uh, surrounding her promotion of a Holocaust denial person. Oh, well, that's good, right? That's positive. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. So what you can hear, <laughs> the slight reluctance that they have about, you know, because they've got to set the scene about why they're going to address this. A couple of days ago, we interviewed a YouTuber called Just Pearly Things. Now, in between booking her to come on the show several weeks ago and actually doing the interview on Thursday, she hosted a well-known white supremacist, openly racist Holocaust denier called Nick Fuentes on her show. Understandably, that generated a lot of pushback and she deleted the interview and issued a lengthy apology. Given that, we were happy to go ahead with the interview. And we obviously had to bring up the situation. It's never our intention to make our guests look bad, but we also have a duty to ask these questions and to challenge people when what they're saying doesn't make sense to us. When we asked about the apology, let's just say things got very awkward very quickly. Oh, I'm intrigued, Chris. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I, this is all new to me, but that is kind of funny. <laughs> it's an awkward situation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, especially, so they don't address it. I would also note that the interview is, I think, about an hour long or, the, or thereabouts, and they don't address it until the last kind of 10 minutes of the yeah. interview um, but but nonetheless they, they do get to it and i think they deserve credit for that they acknowledge it's important to challenge people on and so it's it's nice to see that that stance come up there but so let's let's move to you know this this topic being presented and, and how Pearl might respond to it however there's something even more tricky that i do have to ask you about because in between the time that we booked you to come on the show and you actually coming on the show you had a guy called nick fuentes Oh, yeah, interview. yeah, Nick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you did an interview with this guy. Like, this is not a guy we would ever have on because he's a racist, mm -hmm. uh, Holocaust-denying piece of shit as far as I'm concerned. But you had him on, and then you took that interview down and apologized. Mm -hmm. So what happened with the whole thing? Oh, there's... there's a, I can't talk too much. There's, like, legal things going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I take issue with describing, you know, Nick Fuentes as a you know piece of crap or describing him as, you know, racist Holocaust denier. I mean, that's just imposing... One partisan hero system on another. Like, try why not try for more objective language and then, then quote the most heinous things that Nick Fuentes has said if you want to, you know, make make your point. But I'd describe him as an American nationalist, right? You don't need to you know, call him a dickhead, all right? Holocaust denial, to the best of my knowledge, has almost nothing to do with what Nick Fuentes talks about. Um, he, he may have touched on on th that topic on, on occasion, but to, to use that to define him is is absurd and and racist, right? That's just a completely arbitrary, you know, made up moral category. Now, Nick Fuentes, by virtue of the things that he says publicly, has deliberately exiled himself from you know polite society. All right, he's, he's deliberately stepped away from what is considered socially acceptable. And so he has brought this level of opprobrium on himself. But I, I don't 
you know, I don't think uh, name calling is a particularly superior form of discourse. So I don't agree with either the decoding the gurus and their, you know, foul descriptions of uh, Nick Fuentes. Don't agree with Constantine Kisson. Uh, I'm not a fan of Nick Fuentes, but uh, I think you can do better than just using those cheap put downs. Um, it's a legal thing to go Yeah, on. there's um not not with Nick, but just yeah, but there's um. I have a video coming out about that whole thing. So you, you guys have to wait for the video. Um, well, no, but I will say, I um, I did not find Nick to be racist. Uh, my staff actually did not find him to be racist. Oh, there you go then. <laughs> that's that's it. So, so yeah, you, you don't want to get sucked into that kind of conversation. Right? You're much better off saying you, you deny that there's any reality to the moral category of racist. Right? Just, so don't don't play the game whether or not someone's racist. Just just deny the entire reality of that purported moral category. Like it was only it was only developed in the last few decades, right? There's no you know, calling people racist a hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. Jesus didn't condemn racism. Apostle Paul didn't condemn racism. Maimonides didn't condemn racism. None of the great moral thinkers in history, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, right, they, they weren't uh, condemning people as racist. You can see the pivot, Ron. Like, we gotta, you kind of forced our hand to ask you like this for, uh, and then, so the problem is that Nick Fuentes was overtly racist with Pearl. He wasn't slightly, right? You know, debatable. It, it was overt. So, so Constantine and Pearl get into a debate about, you know, what constitutes racism. So okay. this, this is quite enlightening. Wait, he was talking to an Italian girl next to you mm -hmm. and saying that she shouldn't have a black boyfriend or something along those lines. He, he doesn't believe in... See, I don't really want to go into, like, the race mixing stuff yeah. too much. No, but, but you just said he wasn't being racist and I've watched him be racist on your show. Well, I mean, to me, he says the same things that, like... Like, there's a lot of people that think like that when... But it doesn't make it less racist just because other people think it. You could say that, but to me, it's like... How do I put it? His argument is more about culture. It's easier if you date someone in your culture. Um, she... To, you'd have to watch the full thing, but was like being a bit like combative to him. And to me, he was just like kidding. But yeah. You did say, I am a bit racist, even in that. And in fact, in your apology, you said that he said racist things. Mm. Um, well, there's a video coming out about all of that, but you'll see. It's coming out. Okay. Well, um, I, I got it. I got Look, some, some people put a, a great value on not taking race into consideration, right? That's, that's one hero system. Other people put a great value on the preservation of their people and people, you know, marrying within a particular people. There's no inherent objective reason why one hero system is superior to another. I'm going to hand it to the trigonometry guys. I mean, Chris, to their credit, he's not afraid to call it. Oh, no, this. Shit. Yeah. 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 I, I enjoyed this as well because, like, he, he does confront Pearl on yeah. this. And I mean, like I say, I think their hand were forced a little bit by it, but. Also, it isn't that hard in this case. Matt. Nick Fuentes in the content said he was <laughs> he's racist, right? So, like, it's not really that much of an edge case. No. You know, to, he was arguing against mixed race uh, yeah. dating. <laughs> oh, so if someone says that there's something, then that automatically means it's true. Well, that is the way the world works, all right? I tend to, you know, claim all sorts of disabilities and frailties and vulnerabilities it's kind of a maladaptive habit I have of oversharing, being overly vulnerable. But uh, just because someone says that they're a racist doesn't mean it's true. Just because someone says that they're a bigot or someone says that they are a liar. But uh, we tend to take people at their word. So Nick says something in a context of humor, and then, oh, that, that must be the, the end-all and be-all on this topic. All right, he is admitted to, to being a bad person. I think it's weak so, reasoning. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty open and shut. Yeah, God, this poll person. 
my goodness. And yeah. She's, she, but she's not, she's not going to talk about it because there's a video coming out. There's content. Oh, and, and legal. There's legal legal stuff going on. It's like, uh, I wonder what, what's going on there. Um, but you know, Matt, this did strike me as like, you know, I agree. All the points of Constantine bringing up, completely valid. And, and like you said, firmly stated, but isn't this really guilt by association, contamination? Like she just hosted oh. someone, you know, and he's kind of challenging her on the views of her guest, right? Yeah, like, he should just be asking her about what she thinks. You know? I know it's strange, strange. So anyway, let's let's see. This this clip gets a little bit more into Constantine's views about that. Well, the reason I'm asking you is because it's kind of like a big deal that you had this guy on. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He he is incredibly toxic. Um, I, like I'm just telling you my personal experience yeah. with him. Uh, we filmed hours and hours and hours of footage with him. There's no objective definition of, of toxic, right? He's incredibly toxic to certain hero systems, and he is supportive of other hero systems. So it just depends upon your own subjective partisan perspective on the world, right? For, for many people, Nick Fuentes is amusing. For other people, he's entertaining. For some people, they find him pleasantly provocative. Other people find him unpleasantly provocative, right? He's, he's a mixed bag like everybody. There was that one, in, like, to me, if you watch the full clip, it puts it in a little bit of context. Yeah. But uh, he was really polite. He showed up on time. Like, we just, yeah. he, he also... and, and, and honestly, he did a panel. And he spoke about his opinions on race mixing, and a lot of people agreed with him. Okay, but that doesn't change whether it's racist or not, right? <laughs> uh, okay, that, this, this poll maybe is something else. But Right, so some people think uh, race mixing is heinous, and some people think it's a, a beautiful thing, and other people don't have any strong feeling one way or another. There's no inherent objective reason why any one particular hero system or perspective uh, on this topic is superior to another. Right, in certain circumstances, all right, in certain situations, all right, it would probably make sense to marry within your group. In other circumstances and situations, there may very well be vast advantages to marrying outside your group. Right? It depends on context whether which strategy is more adaptive to reality than another strategy. <laughs> she's, a, <laughs> she's a freak of nature. It's amazing. She's... <laughs> it's, it's okay, because a lot of people agree with her about that. So, you know. Anyway, but um, the penny drop goes. So, in this scenario, Pearl is... What's his name from Trigger Number Three? Um, what? And and you are him. It's like it's a it's amazing. It's amazing. Like she's had look. Nick Freud is a nice guy. She's got a lot of respect for him. You know, like personally, he's like he's good to be around. So people say he's a racist, but I mean, he's a nice oh, guy. is there parallels? Is there parallels here? <laughs> That's interesting. It's interesting. I hadn't spotted that, but yeah. So you know, by calling a guest toxic, you know, it's almost like Constantine is implying there's a contaminating effect from merely interacting with someone with particular views. Strange. It's a very odd stance, given how upset he was at me for talking. Yes, it is contaminating if you have a certain hero system, all right? So I, for, for, those, for those who believe in marriage as a heterosexual institution between one man and one woman, uh, interacting with uh, same-sex married couples may very well be experienced as contaminating. Right? Having same-sex couples on your block or at your workplace may very well be experienced by you as contaminating. If you believe that Jesus is the, the Savior, the Son of God, part of the triune Godhead, that he died on a cross to save everybody from sin, interacting with people who do not believe that may well feel toxic, may, may well feel contaminating. right? If you believe something strongly, right, interacting with people who don't who believe the opposite of what you believe is going to feel contaminating. But there's no inherent objective reason you know, why one hero system here is just automatically superior to others. 
right? In certain circumstances, one hero assistant will be more adaptive or better enable you to pass on your genes to future generations. And in other circumstances, a different hero assistant will be more adaptive. Talking about, you know, what you might infer from the things that people do and do not talk about to people that they invite on the show. I think, um, I think there's a beautiful circle of laughing going on here because Constantine is criticizing Pearl for platforming Nick Fuentes. We have, especially you, have criticized Constantine for platforming other no, people. No, 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 I'm not, I, I haven't con- And this, this use of platforming, right, is bizarre. Now, I recognize that the more viewers you have, the higher your status in society, the more power and influence you have, the more you will be held accountable for everything you say and do. Whether you should be or should not be, the reality is the more prestigious your position, the more powerful your position, the more you'll be held accountable for everything you say and do, you'll effectively have much less freedom of speech. But uh, uh, someone with a, a small podcast or a moderate podcast has on you know, some far extreme guest. I mean, are they really platforming that person? It, it's so bizarre that to even talk to somebody Right is considered uh, platforming, as though as though their very presence, as though the reality of their words and arguments is just inherently destructive. Well, it is inherently destructive if you hold certain things as sacred. So, if you hold racism as a sacred evil, right, that is uniquely damaging and destroying of uh, polite society, then you will find platforming interviewing racists to be the most heinous thing ever right if like me you believe that we prefer to be around people like ourselves and that race is often one category by which people feel more or less comfortable around other people and are more or less likely to cooperate with other people along with say religious belief and political orientation uh looks personality skills Right, there are many things that we take into consideration whether or not we feel comfortable around people. But I, I, I think that the race, religion, personality—that these are just inherent parts of life that people have, and we're going to feel more or less comfortable around people. And I don't see any point in morally judging those who feel, you know, more or less comfortable around certain people. Criticize Constantine for platforming people. I criticized him for what he says to the people that he hosts, what he oh, chooses yeah. to talk about. He. Yeah. Platforming controversial well, no, people. Yeah, no, is, I, I, that's probably the wrong word. I mean, that's what I meant. Like Pearl would have had Nick Fuentes on the gun. He's a great guy. Not not had a go. It's blatant racism. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and look to Constantine's credit. He's despite him being wildly inconsistent with what he said to you, I'll give him credit at least no, he's I, having a go at Pearl he, as he, he should. No, he should. And I do enjoy this. There's an aspect of cringe comedy to it because dealing with Pearl is like dealing with an alien creature that has come down to the planet Earth and doesn't really. Un- yeah, dealing with Pearl is like dealing with an alien creature, only if you have a particular hero system, right? If you have this academic, reflexive, uh, disengaged, disembodied, you know, liberal left uh, hero system, you know, very much based in the Enlightenment, uh, you've taken on you know, anti-racism as a sacred value, you've taken on you know, opposition to homophobia and Islamophobia and sexism and ageism as sacred values, then someone like Andrew Tate or his female equivalent, uh, Pearl Davis, yeah, that is going to be very upsetting to you. But that simply means that you have a particular hero system that is threatened by, that is disturbed by, that feels tarnished by a different hero system. Understand how things like logic or, or like common 
sense worked. And we get, you'll hear a little bit more about Pearl having trouble with this concept of like, racism. Yeah, well, it's just when he was talking, he was talking about how he wanted to date an Italian woman, like versus. Why, why does she have a problem with this concept of racism? Maybe she doesn't believe there's a reality to it, right? If you don't believe that there's a moral reality to a punitive set of racism, you're going to have trouble with the concept of racism for good reason, right? Or depends on your hero system or depends on where you're coming from. Um, like he even said he wouldn't want to date a British girl, he'd want to date an Italian woman. So I was like, how is he a white supremacist? No, he's want... allowed to date who he wants, yeah. but him telling your Italian friend she shouldn't be dating a black man, that's mm -hmm. right, the racist part, don't mm -hmm. you think? Mm -hmm. um, I have to remember what he said in the clip, but maybe, yeah, maybe. Oh, okay, yeah. It is. They're trying to help. They're trying to help. <laughs> That's, they're, like, they're like drawing the dots, drawing the line between the dots. This is, it's yeah. like she's just encountered this word for the first time. Is that racism? Is, is this racism? It's like the Is yeah. There Spring meme. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, so, space cadet that woman is. Yeah, or or an intentional space cadet. But, or but deeply, I, genuinely, deeply dishonest. Yeah. I do think she is a little bit. No, she's not a space cadet. She's not a bad person. She's not a, a freak. She just has a different hero system. That's all. But like she's she's just not very bright in general when you see her argue her points of view and stuff like I don't think it's possible for someone to completely put on the character that she does of being no. such a simple <laughs> I genuinely think that is a natural expression of, of yeah of her character mm, so well, yeah I mean having looked at her Twitter feed I can't believe her as someone who isn't in she's young right a lot of people don't know very much when they're young all right. In a few years, she may be much wiser, much sharper, uh, much more adapted to the, the cut and thrust of the online guru world. All right. She's young and trying to make a name for herself. And she says, you know, a lot of stupid things. And uh, she, she may very well grow up. The idiot has posted things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here's Constantine going to try and draw the line between us. Like, why this parallel that I've been drawing is wrong, Matt. So, so let's see. So that's why I'm asking you because. You, you do have controversial guests, as we do, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with talking to people who are controversial, but Nick Fuentes is a very different kettle of fish, as we say here, right? Yeah, um, my, my opinion is that... He's a different kettle of fish depending upon your hero system. For other serious systems, he's, he's, he's uh, mundane. He's run-of-the-mill. He's non-offensive. Right? What you find offensive depends upon your hero system, which is a subjective, partisan hero system. All hero systems are subjective and partisan. I'm Orthodox Jew. I get my hero system from Orthodox Judaism. I believe that God gave the Torah, right? That's, that's a place I got to through a subjective leap of faith. In addition to whatever, you know, objective arguments I signed on to. He was polite overall. I mean, he was a good guest. He was also denying the Holocaust from what I remember. Look, okay, I'm not with that. <laughs> Keep me out of that one. I'm not with the race. Like, that's not my thing. But I just think people are allowed to have their opinions. So if he has crazy opinions, let him have his opinions. And I think he, he should be allowed to talk about it on a podcast. That does sound familiar, Chris. That does sound familiar. Now I'm seeing why you set the table uh, the so, way you did. So, so in such great detail. <laughs> so many courses. Yes. Well, so that's that's Constantine's view on things. We haven't heard that much from Francis. It's always unfortunate it's, when we don't just, get that. Yeah, that is unfortunate. We're missing out. But it's, it's just deeply ironic to me because I'm very well disposed to Constantine based on these clips, right? Because he's doing the British journalist type of thing, which is quite c confronting and abrasive and all that stuff, which is good for someone like Poe. It's a shame it was relegated to the last 10 minutes of the episode, but put that aside. But the, the, the deeply ironic thing is that he, he's channeling you. He's doing exactly what yeah, you said. Yeah. After, I, arguing, I, after arguing. Because it's impossible to go through life without a hero system, all right? We'll all find different things offensive, depending upon our hero system. When we encounter things that offend our hero system we will have a visceral reaction that will very likely you know before we can 
form any, you know, cognition around what's going on. We will just viscerally revolt. So I believe in the traditional definition of marriage. So when I encounter a celebration of same-sex marriage, that's like viscerally upsetting to me, right? I, I believe in a heterosexual definition of the military, right? And the idea that uh, people would be openly gay and serving in, in a foxhole next to me, uh, that, that's not how I conceive of military. Now, I have no problem like working with, with people who are gay. I have no problem being friendly with people who are gay. I just, I just don't happen to conceive of you know, the U.S. military as being a gay institution. All right? So we all have our own subjective you know, hero systems, partisan hero systems, and, and out of that we, we develop all sorts of reactions that, that proceed even before we can think about what we're saying. With you that, you know, people are allowed to have their different opinions. It's not my responsibility what person X says. I can have them on. I just don't know much about that stuff. I'm not an expert on the Holocaust or COVID or whatever. Why do I have to talk to them about their anti-vax or their Holocaust In denialism? Indeed, the, the tables have turned, so to speak. <laughs> and the, the interesting aspect of it as, as well is that the audience response from trigonometry to this, judging by the comment section on Twitter and YouTube, ah. was not particularly positive. Overwhelmingly oh. negative would be it, how they oh, were but, presented but about, as, but about what? About Constantine and Francis being hall monitors and uh, oh really you know, really yeah. that, that was the response of the wow of course there were also people saying Paul is an idiot <laughs> there were some but but the majority of the response was this is very disappointing so when I've had people from the distant right on my show particularly because I'm I'm Jewish I've had to you know bend over backwards at, at times to avoid confrontation I remember had uh, Christopher Cantwell uh, on my show a couple of times and if you know, any challenge of him, and he would have just left the show, right? I wanted to draw him out. I wanted to elucidate his understanding of certain things. There was simply no room to challenge him and other similar guests, or they would just immediately leave. So sometimes just knowing somebody's story and understanding how they think is a valuable enough service, right? You don't have to confront a guest to do a service with a podcast pointing to see you to tone policing and uh you know what's the harm of speaking to people with different points of view yeah well guys come check out with you guys this is the bed you make and if when that's your audience personally i think all podcasters should make a point to try to dislodge those components of their audience that that they don't really want to be speaking to or making them satisfied in the particular way that they want but i, I feel like they've accidentally or on purpose yeah all podcasters guys you should dislodge Know, those who who violate your hero system made a bit for themselves there yeah yeah well anyway francis let's hear francis he he gets in on the action here but is it also the duty pole of the person interviewing them to push back on those opinions when they come up and actually change them and investigate them and to basically push back on it yeah i mean we could do another show where we push back more it's not the end all be all but surely that isn't that the isn't that i the wanted to do like one with dr umar but he didn't want to come Sad. Dr. Umar has like the same opinions as Nick. Like he doesn't believe in race mixing too. He's just black. Yeah. Mm. It's like a common. Yeah. Yeah. There are some people. Right. So it's socially much more socially acceptable in America anyway for black people to be opposed to interracial marriage than it is for white people. Well, who believe that? Sure. Mm, yeah. Mm. I like. I kind of feel. I mean, many American blacks, or I assume British blacks and blacks in France, want to preserve their own neighborhoods. All right. When they see white people move in, they think, there goes the neighborhood. Because people, generally speaking, have a tribal impulse. That people prefer to be around people like themselves. Right? I don't 
regard this impulse as inherently evil. Now, you can do horrible criminal things, you know, from that impulse, such as violent crime, which horrifies me, is a tremendous violation of, of my hero system. But just having these human impulses towards tribalism, I don't think is an awful thing. I don't know. I feel a bit bad for the trigonometry guys, but they, genuinely, Chris, I'm not having a dick here, but why did they have to on? Why would they do that? Like, why would they think that she's somebody that it is helpful to talk to? Oh, well, because she's popular and controversial. She's, you know, an Andrew Tate type figure. And if she had not interviewed Nick Fuentes, the, I don't think the tenor of this interview would have gone this way at the end. It would have been, you know, mostly you say some controversial things, Pearl, but, you know, you're making statements that are provocative and that are, you know, there's a lot of response to you. So did you really think people shouldn't vote? Because that, that's what the majority of the first half of the interview is. There's some about, you know, are you being deliberately provocative? But a lot of saying, well, yes, you know, there is a lot of crazy things that we, we can't address. And, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. So I, get it's, I get it. So what's, she's what's a what? Okay, a little bit more. She's a YouTuber. So yeah. Yeah, now I get it. This is how the this is how the game works, right? But I guess what's the lesson to be drawn here? We all have our own Overton windows. Yours exclude and mine excludes Holocaust deniers, racists, and anti-vaxxers. Theirs includes anti-vaxxers and Auburn apologists, but excludes Holocaust deniers and overt racists. And is, is this is this a very boring duck away? Everyone's got a different <laughs> Overton window. Yeah, well, I, I think it is, but I think it's just interesting to hear, you know, that all of the arguments that we would make or others would make are now being... Okay. <clears throat> I, I admit it. I allowed that segment to beat itself to death. All right. Are we heading towards World War Three? This is David Goldman talking with Andrew Latham. The military is that given our current, the current state of the U.S. Navy and airland sealift capability, we do not want to get into a scrap with China right now. We're simply not prepared for it. Uh, and that strongly motivated the United States to uh, ask the Chinese to reinstate the hotline and also motivated the Biden administration to make what, as you point out, is an extraordinary concession. It was prefigured by Governor Gavin Newsom of California going to Beijing uh, on October 25th and making exactly the same statement. He said, I oppose Taiwanese independence. Remarkable thing for a U.S. governor to do. Why does he care? What does California think about you know, Taiwanese independence? But he did so. I believe he did that as a gesture to, the, uh, to Xi Jinping prior to the San Francisco summit in preparation for it. It was followed up exactly, as you said, by an extraordinary gesture. And that Jester, I think, as I said, is motivated by a really big change in the military balance between America's forward deployment of the Western Pacific and China's coastal defense. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That military balance piece is crucial, um, and it manifests in all kinds of ways. China now has more hulls, naval vessels, than the United States. They're not as good, they're not, but there's more of them. Um, and as a brown water navy, it's very capable. They have anti-ship ballistic missiles. They've got hypersonics that really can't be shot down at this point. They lead the U.S. in that hypersonic missile technology. Just reading this morning about how they there's an underwater network sensor that um, obviates the American submarine advantage. The American submarines used to be invisible. You were talking about surface combatants, used to be invisible. That's not the case anymore. So when we look at, um, when we look at that military balance, um, it is shifting in ways that do not favor the United States. Now China has no power projection capabilities. It doesn't have 11 carrier strike groups deployed across the whole planet, but in its backyard, right? With respect to Taiwan and the South China Sea, um, there is no way in which any American administration would be loath to engage. But imagine what would happen if uh, uh, Beijing got serious about blockading Taiwan, not in a fit of anger and pique because Nancy Pelosi took a delegation there, but as a serious way of changing the, the status quo. What would the U.S. do? Would it try to run the blockade? Would it try to break the blockade? Would it escort ships? And you can imagine the scope for, uh, for accidents to happen, right? Um, as the Chinese maritime militia, the PLA Navy, et cetera, um, are, are performing this, this crusade. What happens if the U.S. Well, tries to run it? Yeah, I, I think what the Chinese would do in that case is to sink an oil tanker or a natural gas carrier. Uh, the moment they all they have to do is shoot at one, let alone sink it, and uh, the insurance companies would make it impossible for anyone else to do that. And then our probable response would be to blockade 
well going to China from the Persian Gulf going through the Straits of Malacca, which you could easily do. Yep. The Chinese have no blue water capability. And then we'd have a immediate global economic crash. Uh, there'd be no energy going to the Pacific. Uh, China, in terms of BTUs, produces 80% of its energy, mainly through coal, some through nuclear, and they have a substantial amount of oil. So they'd have a 20% decline in energy consumption immediately. Japan and Taiwan and South Korea would have a virtually 100% decline. And the overall effect would be to crash the world economy and ruin us all. So and it would be a standoff. China, uh, under an authoritarian regime, could hold out against a blockade. People would eat rice and pancakes. They wouldn't eat a lot of uh, pork and chicken. But they can produce enough calories and enough BTUs to hold out, whereas our allies in Asia can't. So as you spin the scenario, it, it just would be a catastrophic mess that would hurt everybody. So I think everyone would think twice before doing it. And as people spun out their scenarios, I think the Biden administration and the Pentagon decided that the better part of valor was to give China the assurance against Taiwanese independence. Uh, when you get great powers competing um, in various regions, there's going to be friction. And one element of that friction often, if the stakes are high enough, is the game of chicken. And the game of chicken is a very dangerous game to play when um, we're talking about not cars, but we're talking about um, uh, warships and aircraft and whatnot. Um, I, I think that rather than I think if there's going to be a third world war, it's likely to start that way. It's likely to resemble the First World War rather than the Second World War. I mean, who thought that a Serbian nationalist killing an Austrian archduke was going to spiral out of control the way it did? Um, and I see that I see some scope for that. Um, I, what I don't see, is, I don't see the kind of um, deliberate military attempt to overturn um, really a global order that Hitler was engaged in. I, I don't see that in the offing. I see um, escalation, spiraling out of control, accidents. Um, and that's why I think reestablishing the military to military communication was really an important development because it doesn't eliminate that possibility, but it certainly dials it down substantially. You can actually try the hotline and try to talk it through. Um, yeah, that, and and yeah, the, last, the final point I'd make very, very quickly is I just don't think, despite the protestations after the Olympics and before the invasion of Ukraine, that this was an undying friendship and they were totally committed in it. The friendship knew no limits, Russia and China. Talking about Russia and China. Yeah. Um, I don't see it playing out quite that way. I think China has been very measured and guarded with respect to its support for Russia in its war. I don't think this is a friendship that um, knows no limits or bounds, however they characterized it. As in the case of Gaza, China was not particularly happy about the Ukraine war. Ukraine was the first country that signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative. China was the biggest foreign investor in Ukraine. China's imperial model is everybody pays tribute to the emperor, takes orders, and tries to make money for their family and keeps their mouth shut. They, are, they have an inherent antipathy to nationalism. So they weren't at all pleased about the Ukraine war. I think they sympathized to some extent with the Russian position, and they certainly exploited it to become Russia's biggest trading partner. You can't buy a European car in Moscow. You can only buy Chinese cars. China's official exports to Russia have tripled. Uh, it has been a bonanza for them. Uh, but I agree with Andrew. They were not thrilled about it, and they certainly weren't the uh, provocateurs in the Ukraine war. All right. Just a little burst here from the Duran podcast, the latest episode, Strategic defeat in Israel for Biden White House. All right, Alexander, let's uh, do a video on what is happening in the war in Israel and in Gaza. And uh, the war is is now focusing on the south of, of Gaza and um, horrific, horrific uh, days, early days for uh, the people of Gaza at the beginning of this, of this I guess you could say, this new this campaign, this operation in, in, in the south. But um, you had an interesting statement from Lloyd Austin the other day who said that uh, Israel is is heading towards, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but basically saying that Israel is heading towards a strategic defeat. If it, if it continues fighting the war in this manner, uh, especially with regards to uh, to the death of uh, civilians in Gaza, well, then uh, Israel is heading towards a strategic defeat. I think he said they may obtain a tactical victory, but they're going to end up with a strategic defeat. So what do you make of uh, 
of the, the, the conflict after the renewed war after the ceasefire and the comments from the Pentagon um, chief. Yes, yes. I mean, I think I think I would just make one quick observation. I think that uh, people have been trying to draw distinctions between North Gaza and South Gaza. My own feeling is that this campaign, this military campaign that Israel has been conducting, it's always been envisaged throughout that it would extend to Southern Gaza. It never made any sense to pretend that it was just going to be in Northern Gaza. Now, the key comments are those made by Lloyd Austin and off the record and sometimes not so far off the record, not so far off the record either, sometimes on the record, by US officials. They are increasingly dismayed by what is happening because, of course, you can understand if you're Netanyahu, why he wants the war to continue. He's got a political crisis on his hands in Israel itself. He's under intense criticism for, the, for what happened on the 7th of October. People in Israel are very frightened and they're very angry. And, of course, within his own cabinet, he's got uh, hardliners like uh, Smotrich, who's the finance minister, and Ben Gvir, who's the security minister. And, well, they have very wide ambitions about um, control of the entire territory of the British mandate and strong opposition to the any concept of a Palestinian state, which, of course, pre predates these latest events, the ones that began in October. And in a kind of a sense, they've felt their position has been strengthened by these events and their determination to press on has been renewed. So Netanyahu is under pressure from all of this. So he wants this military campaign in Gaza to continue. For him, it's important to keep it going, if only to ensure his own political survival. And we know that beyond the question of his own political survival, he risks facing all kinds of prosecutions and court cases um, if he were to step down. And that must be a factor in his thinking, even if no doubt he would himself deny it. So you can see the, the push from Israel, from the cabinet in Israel, from the government of Israel, to keep this operation going. The United States, the Biden administration, is looking at a political disaster for themselves. They are conscious that the president's ratings in the United States are still slipping. They are conscious that many, many people within the coalition that makes up the Democratic Party are becoming antagonistic and alienated by these events, by the horror that you spoke about in Gaza. They are aware that even in Britain, the Labour Party's position is now cracking and that they're becoming more critical of what Israel is doing. And they're now talking about a cessation of hostilities. And they're also conscious of the growing political pressure within the Islamic world, with the Saudis and the Egyptians apparently now working together in the United Nations, moving towards some kind of Security Council resolution, which eventually the United States might find it very difficult to veto. They've already agreed to one. They might be obliged to agree to another. So when Lloyd Austin is talking about a strategic defeat and saying that Israel might suffer that strategic defeat, yes, he's probably right, actually, in talking about Israel. But the strategic defeat that the administration is actually worried about is a strategic defeat for the United States and for this administration, especially a strategic defeat for itself, an electoral defeat in the United States and, of course, a larger geopolitical defeat in the Middle East. So you can see you can see that this conflict between the administration and the Israeli government is now intensifying. And you could see, again, the consequences of the error that President Biden made when he went in October to Israel, embraced Prime Minister Netanyahu, and apart, apart from giving some mumbled words of you know calling for restraint, apparently in private, gave the Israelis and the world the clear impression that the United States was going to back Israel all the way. So they're now trying to find some way out of that. It's proving very, very difficult. It's almost like, the, it, no, it is like the, the same mistake they made with, with Ukraine too. 
in, in a way, isn't it? Yes. Uh, you know, they, they think something's going to happen. They believe that the war, the conflict, whatever is going to end up one way. They're so confident about it that, that they make all these statements. They, 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 they pour in all, all this money or all these weapons. They believe that, uh, you know, ships and, and aircraft carriers going into the Mediterranean, they believe that they'll, they'll be able to widen this war out. They'll believe that the, uh, that the, the countries of the Middle East will fracture and they'll, and they'll be uh, fighting uh, one another. And, and they have all of these, Assad may be removed. They have all of these, these grand big chessboard visions, right? All these pieces are moving and they're making all these brilliant moves. And, uh, and they double and triple down on these moves. And then, you know, a month later, a year later, whatever, it, it doesn't turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out. And they're stuck. Exactly. And they're completely stuck, and they don't know how to get out. It's, what we saw in Ukraine, the way they 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 went so so hard with uh, with, with Alensky and supporting Alensky in Ukraine and everything that, that they did there is is almost been accelerated in in the case of of Israel. Instead of taking a different approach at the beginning of this war, like you know we've documented, instead of going about it in a different way, they they just did the same thing that they did with Ukraine. I absolutely agree. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to say it's exactly the same. I'm saying that the, the, the overall philosophy of it, the overall foreign policy philosophy of, of the Biden White House was the same. I think it's exactly right. I think you put it exactly correct. I think when it all started, the immediate impulse within the administration, at least within the, amongst the dominant personalities within the administration, the neocons and all of the people around them, was to go for Iran. <laughs> so you have the aircraft carriers moved to the Middle East. We now see the Eisenhower positioned in the Persian Gulf, ready to strike at Iran. We see the Ohio-class submarine with its Tomahawk missiles deployed to the Middle East as well, ready to, to strike at Iran. We see the moves that were being made against Hezbollah. We see the moves against um, Assad. And I suspect what person but drive, drove those people, quite apart from the events on the 7th of October, which I think, you know, they were seizing upon as an opportunity. But what the thing that has really worried them is the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran in March. And they wanted somehow to take big, big, big moves, all the big moves that you were talking about, to use, to leverage this conflict in Gaza, to blame the events in Gaza on Iran, to arrange things so there would be a conflict with Iran. And um, this is what it was all about. And of course, take out Assad along the way, take out Hezbollah along the way. This is very much the mindset, the way these people think. If anybody doubts that, by the way, can I just again refer them to that programme, which you can find on the Duran, which Glenn Deason and I did with, uh, uh, with Lieutenant Colonel Wilkerson, who was there. Right. Just imagine the disaster that would ensue if we take out Assad, if we start bombing Iran, uh, the, the massive blowback that come into the United States, unleash probably multiple 9-11s. So there are significant members of the Biden administration who want to do those two disastrous things, right? This is the most dangerous foreign policy that America has pursued for 70 plus years. In the US government and has actually had to deal with the neocons on a day to day basis. You see how they think they're constantly planning wars. He says about how they were planning seven wars at the time when he was serving in the government and how rude and impossible they are to deal with. On a okay, let's just uh, leave it there. Talk to you later. Bye bye.